This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Mother's Day. Call your mom. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's Mother's Day on Pod Cemetery. It's not actually Mother's Day. Don't worry. This comes out on Monday. It's not Mother's Day for another six days. Don't <laughs> worry. But we are celebrating it now with our classic film, 1994's Serial Mom, and our modern film, 2017's Mother! <laughs> Mother! But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. What 2018 film unravels cryptic and terrifying secrets about the Graham family ancestry? What? Say again? What 2018 film unravels cryptic and terrifying secrets about the Graham family ancestry? The Graham family ancestry? I don't know. I'm sure it's a movie I know, but no, I don't know. Think about the wording. Unravels. No. Ram, family, ancestry. Ancestry. 2018. I don't know. Hereditary. Oh, doy. Okay. Kelsey? Mm -hmm. What is the name of Norman Bates's mother? Norma. Yeah. Nice. I was like, why can't I think of it? And then I was like, okay, they're Norman. Oh, Norma, because it's named after her. (laughs) Don't worry, the next one's harder. (laughs) All right, let's move right in then to 1994's Serial Mom, our classic film, written and directed by John Waters, probably the only movie of his that we'll do on this show, because there's definitely an argument to be made that this is not a horror movie. Which I didn't realize until I'd watched it. I mean, I had seen it, guys, but I had seen it many moons ago. 1995, mm-hmm. when it was on VHS, probably, is when I saw part of it. Until she came in to kill the friend, and he was masturbating. Or she didn't come in, they came in to stop her, and he was masturbating. And then that's, for some reason in my head, that was Matthew Lillard, I think I said last episode. But no, it's not. It's, it's the not. friend. Yes. Starring Kathleen Turner, Sam Waterston, Ricky Lake, Ricky Lake, and Matthew Lillard, what is Serial Mom about? A suburban mother has gone insane and has decided to kill anybody that bothers her, basically, or her family. I'd say that's pretty accurate. Yeah. It is available on Google Play, iTunes, the Microsoft Store, Prime Video, Voodoo and apparently YouTube for as little as $4 to rent and $7 to buy, depending on where you get it, should people watch Serial Mom. If you know who Waters is and you like Waters, absolutely see it. Yeah. If you know who Waters is and you don't like it, absolutely do not see it. I mean, that's 
that's really the tipping point. It's whether or not you can stomach waters. And this is one of his lightest films. It really is. This is probably the one that got the most mainstream appeal, I would say. I mean, because he hasn't actually made movies in over a decade. Like, it's been a very long time. If you remember Cecil B. Demented, that was one of his last movies that he made. Still never seen it. And that was kind of riding on the popularity of this one, which was only semi-popular anyway. Yeah. But his, of course, his most famous thing he's ever done is Hairspray. But. Right. But I've never seen the movie version. I assume it's got to be weirder than the stage version. (laughs) But that's just an assumption. I've never seen the film version. But then again, I think about Crybaby. Crybaby is not, I'd say Crybaby is actually much lighter than this is. So I love Crybaby, but it appeals to a very specific niche that I love, so... Fair enough. Well, you can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1994's Serial Mom. Are you a serial killer? Oh, honey. Serial Mom is genuinely funny, says People Magazine. Is your wife mental? Uproarious raves Rolling Stone. Cookie? Utterly contagious, says USA Today. It's been a crazy day, hasn't it? The LA Times calls Kathleen Turner furiously funny. And the New York Times agrees it's a warmly funny movie even a mother could love. (laughs) Serial Mom, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. All right, Kelsey, how does Serial Mom begin? With a lie? (laughs) This film is a true story. The screenplay is based on court testimony, sworn declarations, and hundreds of interviews conducted by the filmmakers. Some of the innocent characters' names have been changed in the interest of a larger truth. No one involved in the crimes received any form of financial compensation. (laughs) Which is fun. More than this movie has done something like that in the past. Famously, Fargo does it. Yeah, but Fargo, at the very least... Is semi-realistic. Semi- well, it all, but I mean, like, it also has a base story. What they did with it, yeah. But, uh, like, this, there, it's based on one little tiny thing that actually did happen in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> so we meet them. It's the perfect family. Kathleen Turner is married to... Sam Waterston, who most people probably know from Law & Order. Oh, yes. Yes. He is in Law and Order. I've never seen the show, but I know he's on Law and Order. That's insane. I mean, I've seen episodes, but like, aren't there a billion different Law and Orders? I'd never known which one I'm watching. There are 19 or 20 seasons of Law and Order, yeah. But I mean, like, aren't there different versions? Yes, but I'm talking about the mainline Law and Order. That's the one that he's from, the original Law and Order. That goes 19 or 20 seasons. And then there's Law & Order, Criminal Intent, SVU, which I think SVU passed the original (laughs) in number of seasons. But anyway. And her daughter is Ricky Lake, who is in college, and her son is still in high school, and that's Matthew Lillard. This is Matthew Lillard's first theatrical role. No way. He didn't have anything in this when he was – he wasn't anything when he was younger? Not in a movie, no. Wow. No, he went to my college, actually. My alma mater. I think I knew that. (laughs) So she's got these ticks, these things that bother her, all right? Like one of them is gum. It's the first thing you're going to find out. She doesn't allow her daughter to chew gum. 
because people who chew gum or I don't know, she doesn't like the chomping yeah. or something. John Waters is basically uh, he's he's skewering the per- the idea of the perfect suburban household and the social norms and rules that are enforced socially, like you know, chewing gum, wearing white after Labor Day, you know, like that kind of stuff, polite society frowns on. He's he's basically using that as a vehicle. What if somebody went the extra mile and did what they're thinking when they get upset at somebody who's breaking one of these stupid, stupid rules? Exactly. Exactly. It's it's all the things that suburban mothers... It's stereotypical See, suburban mothers. Yeah, it's not... As it's a not, stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> The stereotype is is that they have, you know, they're all catty. They all secretly hate each other, but they're all best friends. Uh-huh. And they get all together and they love to gossip about each other and say, she wore white, she's chewing gum, mm-hmm. you know. And, yeah, it's just like, what if that mom just went insane? Yes. Her son is obsessed with horror movies. Yeah. So it kind of, this will bring in this question of what kind of a mother are you that your child ended up loving horror films? And I'm not quite sure what Waters' point is here. Yeah, this is where it gets a little mixed up because one of the things you like about her is that she kind of supports both of her children. Yes. And their interests. and Even the fact though they're that, both kind of strange. Exactly. The fact that Chip loves horror movies and gore, like she's into that and supports him with that, which is not normal. And those are the things that make you kind of like her. So, but yeah. But it's are not- you saying that... Are you feeding into that stereotype of if you love horror, you're probably crazy? No, I think he's because at first, I'll I'll, I'll get through it. it mm-hmm. She kills people. The point is, at first, when they discover that their mother is insane, mm-hmm. both he and his girlfriend, who's also a horror nut, are both horrified at what they see. Because it's not like the film, it's different, it's gross, it's real, etc. Etc. But then later, it's the, the the big joke is that, oh, now they want to make money off of her and make, like, a movie out of it, right? I get that joke. But, like, are you saying that only people who like horror films are crazy? Or are you saying that, no, we just enjoy it as entertainment. If we were forced to see it in real life, of course we would be horrified and disgusted. Right, but I don't I don't think that John Waters is making any kind of point. No, is <laughs> is like trying to use his his film as a vehicle for teaching people some sort of lesson beyond a couple of key things which he does in a lot of his movies, which is he embraces strange people. He loves weirdos, and he includes them in his movies all the time, and he likes counterculture stuff. So that's why I don't think he's anti-horror movie or anything like that. So, And and yes, of course, that means that his point kind of falls apart when he's trying to skewer the stereotypical suburban mom. But I think also it's a, hey, wouldn't it be fun if... She actually was secretly a weirdo, obsessed with serial killers, and then went on a killing rampage, and that's why he kind of makes her likable. That kind of sucks. Oh, I don't think he's trying to convince (laughs) you. I don't think he's trying to convince you to like killers, but he is saying, hey, let's just have some fun and some weird shit. 
He's not like. That's the thing. He's not Darren Aronofsky, let's just, just say. If you just want me to watch this and laugh at the silliness and not read anything into it. Yeah. Is that what he wants? Are you saying that's what you think he wants? I think there's something to be read into it, but I don't think, I think that it's not an on-off switch. That if you flip the switch of there's a point to be made here, now everything's a point, and it's all super serious, and you can't have fun with it, there's a, there's a, a range, there's a spectrum here, and you can introduce points, you can base things off of the points that you're trying to make without having to commit yourself to the exercise of everything contributes to that point. Kind of like Mother does, which we'll get to later. I, I don't think it's just an on-off switch. And so if there's anything that, you know, kind of, oh, wait, are we celebrating something that's contrary to his original point? Well, then none of the points count. Like, no, 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 no nothing like that. He's, he's a fun guy making fun movies for weird people. That's <laughs> what he does. <laughs> but so... They're all talking about different things and how he's talking about how much he hates his teacher. Meanwhile, Ricky Lake is talking about her boyfriend and like her mom, their mom is trying to be like, don't say hate, uh, be a good daughter, be a good son. And meanwhile, she's being tormented by a fly. Mm -hmm. She finally kills it and everybody's like, But she's all like proud of herself. I did it. I fixed that problem. Yes. And that's the way she sees these other people. And then as soon as they leave, what does she do? They all go off to school and work and whatever. She calls up Dottie and harasses her over the phone. So the police have are going around asking people about this, the harassment that Dottie's receiving. She got this letter in the mail and it says, I'll get you pussy face. And now she's on the phone doing effectively the same thing. Hello? Is this the cocksucker residence? God damn you, stop calling here. Isn't this 4215 pussy way? You bitch! Now let me check the zip code. 212, fuck you! The police are tracing this call this very minute. Well, Dottie Hinkle, then why aren't they here, huh? Fuck face, fuck you! <laughs> Cussing at her and, and going, making her go, oh, giving her the vapors or whatever. Yes. Dottie, by the way, is played by Mink Stoll, who is... In literally every single one of John Waters' movies, she's one of only two people that's in every one of his movies. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Mink is not her real name. Her last name is Stoll, but she goes by Mink Stoll because it's fun. Now, do you remember why she's doing this to her? Yes. She has a flashback to the traumatic event that Dottie put her through. She was going to, of all places, Joanne's Fabrics. <laughs> And Chris's mom is a Joanne's favorite kind of lady. Yeah. <laughs> and as somebody was pulling out of a completely filled parking lot, they're pulling out of the spot. She was being polite to them. She was waiting for them to leave. She waved to them goodbye. And as she's waving, Dottie comes around the corner and steals the parking space. And then when she sees her, just waves and then walks in, doesn't even acknowledge the fact that she did what she did. And now she holds a grudge. Yes. Meanwhile, we get to meet this guy that Ricky Lake is dating, and this will become important, I promise. (laughs) He sees that she's got a Pee Wee Herman doll, so they have this weird little, like, stand at, like, a... At a flea market. At a flea market, uh I guess, yeah. And they sell weird shit. 
which doesn't really fall in line with this perfect family that they've got. Yeah, but know. but like knickknacks and flea yeah. markets and stuff like that, that's totally normal. <laughs> and he and he immediately is like, oh, that guy's a weirdo. So you know automatically bad things are gonna happen to him. <laughs> Any anybody who says anything against the family, you know something bad's going to happen yeah. to that person. We also meet Matthew Lillard's best friend, who I did recognize. What do I know him from? So that's Justin Whalen, and which is weird because I knew a Justin Whalen in high school, a different character. <laughs> you probably don't recognize him from Lois and Clark, the no. TV show about Superman. No. Uh, he played Jimmy Olsen. What you probably subconsciously recognize him from is Dungeons and Dragons, the movie. He's the main character in that. I mean, I've seen it, but that's not what it is. He's also in Child's Play 3, but we haven't seen that's that yet. That's certainly not it. Right. He was in a couple episodes of Blossom and The Wonder Years, Charles in Charge, Susie Q, Lois and Clark. Susie Q? Sorry, what? He was in the TV movie Susie Q. The Disney movie? Susie Q? He played the character of Zach Sands. Yep. <laughs> That's it. It's totally it. She comes back to life. Teenager Susie Q dies in 1955. Yep. Jumping to 1995, Zach moves into a haunted house with his mom and kid sister. Damn Susie Q's ghost asks Zach for help. He Fucking is Zach. loved it. What year? 1996. So I was nine. That's fine. <laughs> That's legit. I'm okay with that. <laughs> anyway, that is Justin Whalen. <laughs> Who plays Scotty? Yes, Chip's best friend. Along with we haven't pointed out Birdie, his girlfriend, who shows up the first time wearing a Jughead hat. You know, one of those felt crown things that Jughead wears in Archie comics. Didn't notice. So bizarre that you didn't notice that. Played by Patricia Dunnick. And what does the friend do that bothers her? He doesn't fasten his seatbelt. He doesn't fasten his seatbelt. But you would think that being his, her son's best friend would be enough to counteract that. Well, it's a bad influence on her son. I guess. All right. Now, cut to parent-teacher conference with Matthew Lillard's quote-unquote math teacher. I say quote-unquote because in high school, you don't just have fucking math anymore. Like, Well, there was a time when that was the case. You just no. progressed through different math grades. There's sure. a particular type that you learn in high school. Sure. But he also has on his on his wall above his chalkboard polygons <laughs> or whatever it is. It just says. Yeah, they the totally <laughs> just went into a teacher store and bought some shit. Uh, this is not what PTA is, by the way. It's not a parent teacher conference. Right. Yeah, no. PTA is a parent teacher association. They have group meetings where they decide things. They announce things. It's not a one on one with the teacher and the parents. Yeah, it's it's very clear, like. It's always so funny when you know a profession so well uh -huh. and you notice these stupid little mistakes uh -huh. that people make. Like, come on, John, you went to fucking school. <laughs> you should know what PTA is versus a parent-teacher conference. But anyway, it also doesn't work like that in high school, but fucking whatever. The point is she goes to meet him and he's just a total dick. And he talks about how unhealthy it is that he's obsessed with horror. And it's like, what does that have to do with math? Right. 
because he says, no, he actually has an A in my class. He's doing fantastic. Actually, he's a great student, but I'm worried about his mental health. Well, Chip's off to a fine start this year. He's focused, conscientious, participates actively in classroom discussion. He's a good boy. There is one big problem, though. What is it? His unhealthy obsession with sick horror films. Oh, no. Chip's assistant manager at a video store. Oh, that's no excuse for a morbid imagination. I caught him drawing this in class last week. Is there a problem at home? Of course not. Divorce? An alcoholic relative? Tell me, did Chip torture animals when he was young? No, he did not. Mr. Stubbins, we are a loving and supportive family. Well, you're doing something wrong, Mrs. Sutfield. I'd recommend therapy for your son. His unhealthy obsession with sick horror films, and the one in particular they're talking about, I think, is Blood Feast, which Chip will call the Citizen Kane of gore movies. Yes, Blood Feast is the movie, if you remember Juno, when she has that creepy interaction with what's-his-name, makes me really unhappy because I love him. The creepy interaction where he shows her horror movies, mm-hmm. that's the movie he's showing her is Blood Feast. It is, it is very well known for gore, which mm-hmm. is kind of not what we're about. Which but is, are we going to do Blood Feast someday? I don't know. Okay. I don't enjoy gore. I get there's a whole group of you that like it. I don't get why, but that's just me. I'm fine with it. I think there's something about, I think, I mean, especially when we're talking about breaking social taboos and things like that, that movies like Blood Feast did, where they just, you didn't put that shit in movies back then, and they did a lot of it. So, like, it was unflinching, the what they did with the gore in that movie, so... The fact that this movie is celebrating that one kind of makes sense. I just, I kind of categorize gore with torture porn in my in my head. To me, it's almost the same thing because it's just like this isn't scary. It's just gross, and yeah, I, I understand why you feel that way. <laughs> it personally doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, and anyone who wants to say, oh, it's because you're afraid of it. Fine, I don't give a fuck if you think that. Like, I think there's a huge difference between being on the edge of my seat and terrified and covering my eyes and jumping and screaming. I think there's a huge difference there between that and just sitting there and being like, that's really disgusting and I'm not enjoying any moment of this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she's not happy. So she goes to the parking lot afterwards and what does she see that really cinches it? It's the teacher putting in a stick of gum. Yes. <laughs> chewing that gum. And how does she murder him? She runs him down and then <laughs> throws it into reverse and reverses over him. Yes. Meanwhile, a stoner is on the lawn and watches it and is like, oh, shit. <laughs> yes, but she's going to be that stereotypical stoner. Yeah, man. Uh, like, you know, like-, like a lot of characters in John Waters movies are, actually. I guess. Just like hyper-aggressive counterculture figures, you know? Yeah, but- Like Hatchet, you know? Hatchet's thing is that she's ugly. (laughs) (laughs) But she's also hyper-aggressive and outside the normal culture. Because she's been (laughs) tortured her whole life. I understand. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So, but so because the, the stoner is a stoner, no one will listen to her. 
later. Yeah. Even though she totally saw everything. But yeah, so then she comes home right after she's murdered the teacher. And she finds her her son and his girlfriend watching Blood Feast. And she's like, after she sends the daughter, I mean, the girlfriend and the friend home... She's like, oh, put on that scene again. I want to watch it again. And even Matthew Lillard is a little like, okay, weirded out that his mom wants to see it again. That night at dinner, poor Ricky Lake sitting at dinner says, my boyfriend or the guy she's dating says, if I lose weight, he'll take me to the beach blast. Mm -hmm. And it's said very quickly. But obviously, John Waters clearly hates... Fat shamers? Yeah, fat shamers. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Which is so interesting because he's so skinny. Like, he's probably, I mean, he's probably been body shamed for being a skinny guy at some point in his life, but it's just funny because he's never had to deal with fat shaming, but he's so against it. Yeah. Well, he's protective of the people who are ridiculed in society, you know? Yes. And then they find out at dinner, they hear over the news or something or somebody calls, the math teacher is dead. And the father says, whoever did this should get the death penalty. Mm -hmm. She doesn't really have much of a response. She's just kind of like, hmm. And I know it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's frustrating when he puts in these things that, like, that's something we should talk about. How does he feel about it later when he finds out that it's his wife? I mean, he's happy his wife gets away with it, you know, because he has his wife back. But, like... Does he truly think that? Or does no, I think society is, tell yes. him that's what that's he should exactly say? That's exactly what I think it is. Is Waters making a point here? And it's like, this is kind of a big topic to say in one line, and that's it. Well, because it's not what the movie's about. I guess. It's just like... But he does drop it in there as like a, oh, polite society would think that the death penalty is good. But, okay, well, what happens when that person is somebody you know? Yeah. Which isn't the only reason you should be anti-death penalty, but it's one of them. (laughs) Chris is anti-death penalty. (laughs) I'm very confused about it, if you're wondering about my position. So then the mom says, but didn't you hate your math teacher? And he's like, and and Matthew Lillard's like, yeah, but that didn't mean he deserved to die, mom. Yeah. Can't believe Mr. Stubbins is dead. You said you hated him. He was an asshole, but he didn't deserve to die. That night, the husband gets into bed, and she's like, hey, wait a minute, don't I get a good night kiss, whatever? And he's like, oh, I thought with the death, you wouldn't want to. Uh And she goes, we have to concentrate on life, Eugene. (laughs) So they go on to have gross, loud sex, because she's hot on the fact that she murdered somebody. Uh And the brother, I mean, the son and the daughter are like, ew, gross. And the next morning, she's looking at her favorite starlings, which will become important for a really stupid reason. Well, it's another thing that just like quaint, polite folks do is they go birding. They're one of the things that her and Bev- have we said her name? Her name is Beverly, by the way. I don't know if we've said it. That Beverly and Eugene are going to go do. They're going to go on a weekend birding trip where they look at she's reading a giant book that says birds on it. In which we discover she's actually reading profiles of serial killers on the inside. Mm-hmm. But yes, they're they're big birding fans. But the reason this will become important is because later she decides to kill people solely because they're eating chicken. 
Yes, or it's quail? the one type of food that she does not like to eat because or is she it loves birds to be so a much. Starling. Oh, so any bird. Yeah, she loves birds. That includes turkeys <laughs> or chickens. I, yeah, I don't know what they're supposed to be eating, but like she makes the equation to the starlings, and I'm like, I don't think people eat starling, do no. they? Anyway. At the breakfast table, Ricky Lake finds out something about the guy she's dating. Something. He doesn't want to pick her up. stood her up. Oh, stood her up. Yeah. And so she's screaming, I'll kill that bastard. Not a good thing to shout around your mother. Yeah, this mother in particular. Somewhere around here, Chip says something. It doesn't really matter where it is. Chip says, So happy I could shit. And Beverly says, Chip, you know how I hate the brown word. It's just so great. <laughs> so good. <laughs> the cops will keep coming back? Yes, the cops we, The cops have already shown up. The cops are coming back again today. I don't exactly remember why. But this time they find one of the magazines is missing a letter yeah. that they needed for one of for the one of the letters that the lady the down P the street. The P from pussy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and they ask her about it she's like it's not mine i borrowed that from a friend across the street yeah and besides i recycle (laughs) which is another big thing another important (laughs) thing yes because her neighbor across the street litters yes she's a big litter bug and (laughs) she uh, beverly will make friends with the (laughs) trash trash guys guys. (laughs) these guys are so great they are 100% on her side. Because they're all about recycling. And so when they're commiserating about how awful it is that the neighbor litters and that she doesn't recycle, the, the trash men are like, You know, somebody ought to kill her. Yeah. Give her a happy face. And then recycle her. For the sake of this planet, somebody just might. And, you know, you think it's going to be like, oh, that gives Beverly an idea and they didn't really mean it that way. No, they 100% meant it that way. Yes, they they (laughs) totally support her later for what she did, which is funny because that's contrasting to Ricky Lake, who said, I'll kill that bastard. And then later, yeah, Yeah. it's like, what the fuck, mom? (laughs) Because, yes, she's going to kill Carl. So... This is just, it's just absurd moment after absurd moment. And that's why I have a big problem with this, that we chose to use this movie. Totally my fault. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And when it came out on TV, I was probably eight and probably too young to see this. But I did. I remember very specifically seeing this on TV and being proud of myself for not being afraid of a horror movie. Uh Uh-huh. Because it's not a horror movie, right? Like, as a kid, I couldn't make that distinction. Well, it's not a traditional horror movie. It's not something you would classify as horror. But there are a lot of horror themes and horror tropes in here, yes. But so, like, watching it now as an adult, because I'm sure I've seen parts of it since then, but I haven't seen the whole thing since I was a kid. And watching it now, I'm like, oh, this is not a horror movie at all. This is just absurdist comedy. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think... It does okay here. It's gathering momentum. She's starting to do her murders. She's starting to be crazy. But it really hits a halt when it gets to the trial scene. Yeah. So let's, do you want to just go through the the kills that she does real quick and then we'll get to the trial? Um, Well, there is a quick thing I wanted to mention here. Okay. Uh, Like before, okay, so she's killed the math teacher. Yes. The next thing she will do is not a murder. 
but it's really weird and funny. She goes over, I think she's planning to murder the woman the neighbor, who litters. Yes, yeah. But Dottie's Dottie, there. Dottie Hinkle is there. <laughs> so she comes inside because she gets caught. Because uh-huh. Dottie's like, oh my God. She's just standing there staring at them. <laughs> and she comes in and her friend's like, oh, do you want a beer? And that will also become important yes, later. Everything comes back. Yes. Everything comes back in this movie. And I love that about it. The fact that they drink in the afternoon, she will use later to say, we can't trust her. She's an alcoholic. Uh-huh. Which is completely ridiculous having a beer but that's what's supposed to be silly yes Yes. but so while she goes inside to get the beer what happens between her and Dottie so Beverly finally reveals to Dottie that she's the one that's been harassing her and Dottie's get all up in arms and then she grabs one of the neighbor's Fabergé eggs and smashes it on the ground she takes her neighbor Grabs her by the arm and is like, oh, I'll take her and get her a new one. We'll go to the flea market and we'll grab a new one. And just takes her away from Dottie, leaving Dottie there to be like, oh, what? Huh? What? But she blames it on Dottie. Yes. She says it's Dottie. And <laughs> the friend is like. The least well, you could do is say you're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, which is absurd. Why would she just believe one of them and not the other one? Right? Well, it's a. There's a hierarchy of lies that you believe, and a lie accusing somebody else is more believable than a lie that you say to protect yourself, especially when you hear the one before the other. So the first person to speak up about what happened is Beverly and says, Dottie did it. And then when Dottie says, I didn't do it, that's just a lie that, of course, somebody would try to protect themselves and say that, because the one sets up for the other to be not believed. I don't know. If I walked in, and of course I'm not in a movie, but if I walked in and two of my friends were in a room and one of them immediately said, she broke this, and the other Uh one's like, what? No, I didn't. I would immediately be like... But again, (laughs) it's absurd. We need to harass Dottie and we need to get the neighbor to the flea market and Beverly to the flea market. Yes. Meanwhile, back at their house, the father, the husband gets a call and it's from the cops and the cops are like, we're thinking it's your wife. Uh (laughs) And he's like, what are you talking about? Of course it's not. But that's what starts to make him. Is it my wife? Uh (laughs) Yep. Back at the flea market, Ricky Lake, her mom and the friend are all there now. I guess selling things at the at their little store, walking around looking for things, mm-hmm. and we happen to see the guy that Ricky Lake was dating, and he is there with some other chick who's making him spend all his money on her. Oh, the other chick, by the way, is Tracy Lords, famous ex porn star. Uh, she's also in a couple Crybaby. different, yeah, she's John the, Waters movies. She's the yes. one with the boobs. And the guy goes to the bathroom, and Beverly follows him in. And how does she kill him in there? She runs him through with the poker that Beverly, the friend, bought at the swap meet. Yes, and while she's doing this, there is a guy in there writing things on the wall, and he looks through a glory hole Uh and sees this happen. He sees her standing there waiting to, to kill him. But he doesn't actually see it happen, unfortunately. It Well, it wouldn't matter if he did, because at the trial, she's going to seduce him, yeah. and he's going he's gonna to lie. But so. I just got to say here, the guy who ends up finding Carl's dead body, face down in the urinal, you know one of those urinals that stretch all the way to the ground? I don't know how much women know about these things. 
and w- of course, first Beverly has to flush it because yes. he never flushed, so she has to flush it all up in his face. The guy who finds him there on the ground, he just screams. It's one of the best applications of a stock scream. It's almost as famous as the Wilhelm scream. It's called the Howie scream. Yeah! It's named after Howie Long in Broken Arrow when he dies, but it's from the 80s from a movie called The Ninth Configuration. But it's also used as a, yeah! That, he's just, he just stands there and we just watch him make that scream. <laughs> it's just so, mwah, mwah, chef's kiss, mwah, perfect. Beverly runs up to her little booth. Do you know what she says to her daughter? She's got something in her hand. Do you know what she says? Bye. Honey, look, I made a killing. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. And then later when they find out that Carl's dead, Ricky Lake comes up to her and tells her that. And she's like, oh, that's so awful. By the way, I sold the the Pee Wee Herman doll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she's like, mom, why aren't you freaking out? And she's like, I thought that you didn't love him. And she's just like, that's not the point. <laughs> I didn't want him dead is what she says. Yeah. The neighbor that's there sees the blood on the poker. But doesn't say anything? Yeah, we don't hear about that until the trial. Until the trial. And I forget how they even say, because I guess it's hers. Yeah, it is her. She's the one who bought it. And I think she cleaned it up. But the point is, is like, why wouldn't she say anything then? Why wouldn't she go to the cops? She could be lying on trial. I don't know. She also has blood on her shoe as well. Yes, that's what she focuses on. Like, she's got a little gunk on her shoe. And of course, Beverly's like, ooh, oh, God. Gross. <laughs> that night, do you remember what movie Matthew Lillard and his girlfriend are watching? They're watching Straight Jacket in Which the video store. Which is another story. movie we've covered on here about a mom who's on crazy. Mother's yeah. Day. <laughs> another Mother's Day movie. Uh-huh. If you haven't listened to our episode on Straight Jacket, it's an old one, but we did an episode on Straight Jacket. It's an interesting film. It was very interesting. <laughs> they will co- somehow come to the d- decision. That it is their mom. And he'll shout out, our mom is Charles Manson. Yes. Well, we do know that Eugene finds all this extra stuff in their room when he starts to get suspicious. All the books about the murderers. He finds a tape from Bundy recorded before he's killed. Beverly, it's me, Ted Bundy. Late at night, six days before my execution, and it's lonely here on death row. For Beverly, that's John Waters' voice, by the way. (laughs) And so, yeah, there's just a lot of that kind of stuff that he finds, and he's like, oh my god, my wife's the serial killer. Yes. She's also mad at Betty and Ralph Sterner, who are patients of Eugene, her husband. Her husband is a dentist and they force them to break their plans to go birding for the weekend because ralph has a dental emergency and then they mistreat him and they they make fun of him she overhears them making fun of him and all that right at first she says the doctor said no sweets for you Uh and at first kathleen turner's like oh yeah i won't kill them and then he laughs and he goes Uh, what does he he know know? yeah uh uh-huh so she decides to kill them so this is where we get the shot from the cover of the movie where she has Beverly's scissors, scissors that she took from Beverly's house. And she's in the closet. And when Betty goes to the closet to get changed while her husband's downstairs eating like a cake or something, 
She moves the clothes, and there's Beverly holding the scissors in front of her and big old smile on her face, and she stabs Betty to death. With a weird little thing, too, because at first she thought it was mice that she was hearing. Yeah. And then she goes up to check, and it ends up being Kathleen Turner, and she kills her. <laughs> they apparently still did have mice, and the mice come out and, like, like are biting her, which was odd. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess that's Waters. Meanwhile... Her son, who went to save her, his best friend's life. So, yes, all the family ends up barging in on Scotty, who's just masturbating to giant boobs on the screen. And this is where my mom made us turn the movie off. This is filth. It's garbage. <laughs> but this also makes Scotty kind of turn against her even more so. Yeah, he's getting more and more scared because now it's like, wait a minute, is her own family thinks that she did it? She probably did it. Yes. And... Meanwhile, she kills the husband, the other guy. By dropping an air conditioning unit on his head as he runs outside and yells for help. And Ricky Lake is upset because now she's never going to get a boyfriend. The husband is like, honey, we're going to get you the best psychiatric help. So they go to church, but everybody now thinks it's her. So everybody is being very suspicious of her. The cops are all following her. It's very silly. There's Uh tons tons of them. And... They say, there's a really cute line. It's really, you can't, you can barely hear it, so we can't really put it in here, but it's over the radio, and they say, bingo, boys, bust the bitch. Yes, because they're trying to confirm that the fingerprints match. The fingerprints on the books they found in the trash, these serial killer-focused books, match the murder weapon for one of the murders. And so when they go into the church, and everyone notices... While the priest is giving a sermon on how Jesus said nothing to condemn capital punishment as he hung on the cross, did he? If ever there was a time to go on record against the death penalty, wasn't it that night? Capital punishment is already the law in the state of Maryland. So what are we waiting for, fellow Christians? Let's just do it. Which is obviously absurd. And then there ends up being a big riot because a mom who's holding her baby screams when she when she sees Beverly or when somebody sneezes on her baby or something. Somebody sne- yeah. yeah. Screams and people think that it's because of Beverly and then everyone freaks out and the trash guys who are there Punch are awesome. The they just start punching the cops, <laughs> which is great. And then Beverly can escape. Chip and and Birdie, his girlfriend, find her. They they take I think Scotty's family's convertible or something. Anyway, and they hide her in the back of the video store while they go to open up the shop. This is when a customer comes in. So this lady, Miss Jensen, comes in, and she. She's returning ghost dads because as she says, I just love Bill Cosby movies. (laughs) Ahead of its time. Ahead of its time. (laughs) But she didn't rewind it. And when Chip admonishes her for that, she's like, why should I? I don't care to. And he's like, well, you keep doing this. I'm actually going to have to charge you the $1 rewind fee. There's a reason why you have to rewind. Because the next time somebody gets it, it's like the polite thing to do. You should just be able to put it in the VCR and play it. For those of you who are out there who have never played a VCR or any other form of tape, 
you have to rewind it before you can start it again. Um, it was always the worst when I'd put in a Disney movie and it would be at the credits and be like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> and so the video store has to do the rewinding. And there's just so much of it that they end up getting these rewinding machines and you know, it, they end up having to put in the extra work when really you watched it, you rewind it, and then you return it. Be kind, rewind. That's what it means. Takes like two seconds. Yes, exactly. And Miss Jensen also admonishes Chip for watching the horror movie on the TV there. And when she leaves, finally, after having picked up Annie, because she loves Annie, they go in to check on Chip's mom, and she's gone. So they go to follow her. And they end up following her to Miss Jensen's place. She goes in and they're trying to look in up over the wall and just watch it. And meanwhile, Miss Jensen's singing, tomorrow, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was one of the largest expenses for this movie was just getting the rights here? to that song in yeah. this movie. Yeah. I'm surprised they were willing to mm-hmm. pay it. She's going to stab her with a knife that she found in the kitchen. And instead gets the idea about the turkey or whatever it is, the the bird that's cooked up on the counter well, there. this isn't the family, I think. She sees, she, this happens twice. With the couple she killed earlier, they cooked a bird and it reminds her of the starling. Yes. And that's why she gets upset. So it establishes we know she doesn't like people eating birds. Now she sees another one. She tears the leg off of it this giant turkey, and then ends up beating this woman to death with it and getting blood on the screen as tomorrow, tomorrow plays. And they don't see it, but Birdie does look up. They see the blood on the TV. Yes, and she says, do you remember what she said? It wasn't wasn't red like the horror movies. It was brown. Yeah, I saw the blood. It was brown. Yeah, which makes it a little real. But who did see her? Scotty. Yep, who also followed them. And is on the roof of the neighbor's house. So he quickly drives away telling God, I'll never watch another sex film again. I promise. I promise. If you just let me live. Because the mom definitely saw him and is now chasing after him. And behind her, her family is chasing. And behind her family are the cops. And they say, (laughs) one of the cops says, everyone be advised she is armed and fucking nuts. (laughs) So she chases him to this club that's, I mean, remember, they were just at church. Then they're at the video store for a little bit. Then she kills Mrs. Jensen. Then she chases Scotty to this club in the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday that's playing a punk show by the Camel Lips. Yes. Who all have these sort of camel toe things on uh, that they're wearing. It's it's an all-woman punk band. And it's a big crowd, and so Scotty's able to get in. Then Beverly shows up, and she tries to get in when the crowd recognizes her. And they're like, oh, my God, are you that serial mom? Yes, and so they keep letting her go up to the front of the line. They don't explain how Scotty got to the front of the line, but they just needed to have a reason for why it takes her a while to get to Scotty. Well, he knew the bouncer, and the bouncer wasn't going to let him in, but then he was, like, begging him, and he's like, yeah, fine, whatever, and he just lets him in, because he calls him by name. Oh. And so the family gets in. They get in with no trouble. They don't say how they get in, but they do manage to get in, and then the cops eventually come... He's running from her in the back of the stage. She has the knife that she found at Jensen's house earlier and didn't end up using because she used the turkey leg. And she goes to attack him, but instead... She cut the wire to send the lights that were up above come crashing down on him. Yes. Uh, And then she lights him on fire. (laughs) (laughs) So he's just on fire on this punk show. The band keeps playing. There's chaos. 
Um, and they all cheer her out when she finally gets taken out. Yes, she is arrested here. Five months later, we get the trial, and this is when the movie comes to a screeching halt. If you're looking at it from a horror perspective, which, granted, that's what we're doing here. Yes. But if you're just watching it as a as a funny John Waters comedy, it doesn't. It's a it's just the murders stop for this act. But right. the the same tone is kept throughout the whole thing. Really, all you need to know is that she decides to defend herself. And, and she gets away with it by doing crazy antics. Yes. She ends up turning all the witnesses ag- against uh, the prosecution, and they can't end up prosecuting her. Including the the jury member who she hates. Yes. That, by the way, is Patty Hearst. Famous heir to the Hearst fortune, who was kidnapped by uh, the uh, the Liberation Front. I can't remember their name. It's one of the great cases of Stockholm Syndrome, where she ended up getting caught in a bank robbery with the same group. And so it's this big whole thing. But she, I think, ended up going to prison and served her time and got out for the bank robbery. And now she's just like a public figure as the famous Patty Hearst, the kidnapped victim turned criminal. And John Waters has put her in more than one of his movies. And she plays juror number eight in this. Yes, juror number eight. And if you've read or seen 12 Angry Men, that number should mean a lot to you. (laughs) Juror number eight is the one who instigates the idea that the person could be innocent. Yeah, from the very beginning is saying yes. And later on, she will say on the phone, I said she was innocent from the beginning. And yes, she's in Crybaby. She's the mother of the girl who was earlier in the film who was dating Chip. (laughs) Tracy Lord. She plays her mother. Yes. So Patty Hearst is wearing white shoes, and originally this is why she gets rid of her lawyer, I think, because she writes a note to him and is like, juror number eight is wearing white shoes after Labor Day, and she keeps pointing out, like, this is a problem, and he refuses to do anything about it. No, he she decides to get rid of him because he tells the court, she is insane. Oh, she's not guilty she's by reason of insanity. She's not guilty by reason yes. of insanity. Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, she ends up getting off, and everyone's really excited. Uh, Suzanne Summers has shown up to the proceedings. She's going to play her. Yeah, she's going to play her in a made-for-TV movie about how she was wrongfully accused. But she ends up being declared not guilty, and there's all these interviews. The place is it's packed and she ends up seeing juror number eight, Patty Hearst walk away and she's like, excuse me. And she follows her and the interviewers end up interviewing the family instead. And Suzanne Summers is, is still there and she ends up finding her and she's on the phone with somebody. And this is where she says, Oh, I always knew she was innocent. Beverly hangs up the phone that she's on the, the, the pay phone. And they're in this little alcove where nobody can see them. And she's like, uh, excuse me. You're wearing white shoes, and it's after Labor Day. You can't wear white shoes after Labor Day. That's not true anymore. Yes, it is. Didn't your mother ever tell you? (laughs) Now you know. What does Patty Hearst say to this? Fashion has changed! Yes, but she's like, it's, oh, it's okay, you know, that's fine now. And she's like, no, it's not. And she starts to, like, beat her with the telephone, and as she's getting beaten up, Patty Hearst says, No, please. Fashion has changed. No, it hasn't. No, please. Fashion has changed. (laughs) And this is the kind of absurdist comedy that we're talking about throughout this whole entire movie. And she ends up being killed. 
And as she goes back to the crowd and everyone's making a big deal. She yells at Suzanne Summers Because she doesn't want to be in a picture, but it's the final little thing, the rule that you don't, the final rule that you don't break that they talk about in this movie, where she just screams at Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers, this is my bad side. Smile cereal, mom. Suzanne Summers, this is my bad side. And everyone starts to go, oh, Jesus. And somebody finds the dead body. And, and Suzanne Summers like, oh, fuck. Yes, and that's where the movie ends, where people are like, oh my god, did she actually do it? That's how the movie ends. It's just nonsense. It is nonsense. It's okay that it's nonsense. Yeah. Do you have anything else to talk about about this movie, Kelsey? No. Yeah, I don't really have any extra things. I think we got through all of it in, in the discussion. So, with that said, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? A 66 Close, actually, a 63%. There you go. Although there is no consensus statement, a Metacritic average rating of 64. Do you think that that is overrated or underrated? It's probably pretty close to what I'm going to give it. What are you going to give it? I was thinking I would give it a 65. Yeah, that sounds about right. I I mean, I'm giving it a 75. Because I just, I love it. I think it's hilarious. It's. I didn't think it was that funny. No, you heard me laughing out loud several times in this movie. Parts of it were. It kind of brings me back to a to a time. In this case, 1994, when that's that's like exactly what my humor was when I was a preteen and a teenager, and I fucking love that shit. So, I mean, it's not some great work of art or anything like that. It's kitsch. It's camp. It's intentionally bad, but not in a way that you're just like, oh, this is, you know how sometimes intentionally bad, like Thanksgiving is intentionally bad, right? Right. This is intentionally fluff, I guess would be the better term. It's intentionally camp. And I appreciate that about it. I think it's, I think it's really funny. There is still, despite the fact that it's intentionally bad, there is still comedy in it. Yeah, I think I just I was really disappointed because there's no horror elements really at right. all. I just appreciate that it doesn't rely on the fact that it's intentionally bad to be funny. I think it's interesting that you can watch a movie that's about a serial killer and not have it be a drama and not have it be a horror. I love I think that's hilarious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I really like this one actually. I would say. But again, it's not some great masterpiece or anything. It's not going to get in the 80s, but I think smack dab in the 70s, absolutely. All right, that is 1994's Serial Mom, and thus ends our classic movie. Before we get into our modern movie, Kelsey, horror trivia. Which franchise has the most sequels? Oh, Jesus, here we go again. Puppet Master or Child's Play? Oh, crap. Oh, crap. I don't know either of these nearly well enough. I've literally only seen the first Child's Play and the remake, but I'm aware of the rest of them. I have a high awareness of them, but never actually sat down and watched them front to back. I do, however, know that they're like still making Puppet Master movies. (laughs) Depending on when that card was written and not counting the Child's Play remake, I would say Puppet Master. It is Puppet Master. Okay, right on. (laughs) All right, Kelsey. What is the name of Piper Laurie's character in Carrie? Carrie's mother. This was the hard one. I was 
teasing earlier. I feel like Mary would be too obvious. You're right. It is not Mary. Margaret? Yes. <laughs> it is Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on then to our modern film 2017's Mother. 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 Written and directed by Darren Aronofsky and all of his scarves, starring <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, Ed Harris, and Michelle Pfeiffer, among others. What is Mother about? The Bible. <laughs> it's about Mother Nature's relationship <laughs> to God and humanity. That's what it's about. It's told in a metaphor about a woman and her husband making up the, a house, which is supposed to be Earth, and then it being taken over by, human, by humanity. Yes. That's the movie. It is available on almost every platform, but it is not streaming for free. You can rent it for as little as $3 and buy it for as little as $7, again, on Prime Video. Should people watch Mother? That's a really hard question to answer because I liked it so much better this time around. Yeah. As opposed to the first time. I mean, I'm still not a fan of this film, but... I liked it exactly the same. Like, I am... My first assessment is my assessment now. No, I hated it when I first saw you it. You did. I, it's still not good, in my opinion. But it's interesting. It's one of my least favorite Aronofsky movies. But I like a lot of his movies. I like movies of his that you don't like. There's only really one I can think of that I don't. Pie. Yeah. Pie was the first Aronofsky movie I ever saw. I didn't even know who he you. was when I saw it. I would not have watched any of his other films if that was the first <laughs> one I had seen. Yes, but then obviously Requiem for a Dream and... and uh, Probably one of the best movies ever made. The Fountain, which ever. I think is underrated and underseen. Very good. We're going to be watching this one later, Black Swan, which Love is Black Swan. an incredible movie. Yeah, and then he made Mother and it's just... We also did that other Bible movie that we didn't see. About Noah? <laughs> oh, he did Noah. Yeah, we that's didn't what it's see called. That. Yeah, it's yeah, that's a really good point. See that point. one? At least he told me. That's a good point. I'm making Noah. And I was like, okay, Darren, I don't need to see that. <laughs> this one, however, was called Mother and was only marketed as a yeah. horror film. So of course I went to see it. Oh, if and he, he did the he did the he wrestler said, too, which is fantastic. If he had said it's called Mother Earth and the Bible, I would have said, no, Darren, I don't want to see that. I knew something about this movie, which I'll get to at the very end going into it, and it made me go, huh. I didn't know anything. No, no, no nothing in. about the plot, but about its reception. It made me go, huh. I'm curious now. We also had an interesting run-in when we saw this movie. Yeah. <laughs> we saw it with our roommates at the time. And... People were saying things about how they did not understand it, and yeah. Yeah, and it's like, even if even if you didn't like it, it's not hard to understand. Yeah. It is so overt. I don't... I mean, okay, the first time you see it, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh -huh. I can see being like, what the is Christian this Bible, mess? By the way. Yeah. What is uh -huh. this just mess being thrown at me? However... The second time you see it, it's not nearly as much of a mess. Right. When I look back on it, when I was looking back on it before, mm -hmm. all I remembered was the chaos and the mess. Yeah. 
there's actually a lot of quiet to this film that you forget about. <laughs> so I can understand perhaps the first time seeing it, if you're especially not familiar with the Bible, afterwards being like, what the fuck was that? Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to get into... I don't know into... what the answer is. I don't know if you should see it or you shouldn't see it. I think you should see it because I I just think you you shouldn't talk about it, which is why... Like, oh, God damn it. I can't believe that's what we're going to do. And so I'm going to try to fight against that so much. This movie is one giant metaphor. And my problem with a metaphoric movie like this, I was talking to Kelsey about this when we watched it, is that it becomes exhausting to talk about. Like, you have to analyze everything. (laughs) Every relationship, every plot point, every scene, every moment, every movement for how it fits into that metaphor. And we're not going to do that. We are absolutely not going to do that. But but neither of us cares enough about this Because it's just that same thesis (laughs) just over and over and over and over and over again. And we'll tell you right now that thesis is that man and God have mistreated the earth. That's the thesis. Yeah, that's that's the point he's making. And it's it's rather silly that he went to the lengths that he did to prove that. But my point <laughs> is, is that it is a beautiful movie. You take out all this metaphor stuff and it is fascinating. It had me like it just carried me through the whole entire movie just with how it just ramps up in intensity as the movie goes. And you're just like, oh my God, what's even going to happen next? Like that, I I was fascinated the entire movie. Um, But it's also just crazy annoying with how everything needs to fit into this metaphor. And then it's frustrating when it doesn't, because then all of a sudden (laughs) you're a fucking idiot. And it's like, no, I can see how you could bend and twist this, but it's an imperfect job. Well, of course it's imperfect. If it was perfect, they'd just be telling you the story of the Bible. Exactly, exactly. But I think there's this expectation that, you know, oh, if you don't understand it, then you're the idiot. And it's not that I don't understand it. It's that I understand that Aronofsky did a bad job of trying to fit everything into this metaphor, and then it breaks apart in some ways. (laughs) Anyway, we'll we'll get there. But yes, I do think you should watch it. Even if you end up hating it, it's a spectacle to behold, and I think it's worth seeing. That would be my advice, at least. Just know that this, too, is not really a horror movie. It becomes it's, more horrific as time goes on. It's yeah. much more of a horror than Serial Mom is. Yes. But you're not on the edge of your seat, you know? I feel... No, it's, yeah, I feel the exact opposite. I am on the edge of my seat the entire time. Because things just keep get ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And of course, that's kind of what he's saying about the impact that man has on the earth. Yes, I get that. But again, we're not going to keep going back to that once we establish this plot and how it relates to the metaphor he's trying to talk about. We're going to try to not to harp on it so much. <laughs> Because I really, really, really don't want to just say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. I don't either. But, again, watch it and we won't have to. But if you don't watch it, it's going to be fun to hear some of the stuff we talk about. If you haven't seen this movie and you just hear us talk about it, you might go at some points, what the fuck is happening right now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When you're in the movie watching it, you're thinking that. (laughs) It's not a linear story. It's, It's all of humanity wrapped up in two hours. So 
It's just a bunch of highlights of the shitty things that we right. done. But it happens in the context of this scenario in a very short period of time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. You could take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 2017's Mother. <laughs> we spend all our time here. I want to make a paradise. I love you. Please, come in. Hello. Hello. He's a stranger. We're just going to let him sleep in our house. He has pictures of you in his luggage. What were you doing in their luggage? Hello. Did you know he had a wife? Can I ask you a question? Why don't you want kids? Excuse me? Who's these people? Who are they? to see me god help you why are you crying what did you do i'm trying to bring life into this house open the door to new people new ideas get out of my house no! mother all right let's get this out of the way straight from the horse's mouth Here's what Aronofsky has to say about the movie. He's given multiple interviews and said basically the same thing every single time. And it's going to break down effectively the events of the movie and how they relate to his metaphor. So we don't have to, I guess. (laughs) He told one outlet that Lawrence is Gaia or Mother Earth. While her house represents the world, a living, breathing organism being destroyed by its inhabitants. Her husband, known as him in the film, is God. This is Javier Bardem. Out of boredom, he creates Adam and Eve, the couple. This is Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer, who proceed to destroy both Gaia's creation and his study. In this case, the Garden of Eden, which holds God's perfect crystal the fruit of knowledge. I think Aronofsky calls it the apple. Their quarreling sons are Cain and Abel. They also bring worshipers to praise God who keeps sitting on mother's unsupported sink and eventually cause the pipes to burst into a great flood. God impregnates mother who gives birth to the Messiah, a chaotic sequence followed by a disquieting communion and revelation. That's the movie. He told another outlet, him is God. As the film begins, him is a writer who hasn't been able to write anything new for a long time. The book he wrote, which earns great praise from his fans, may be understood to be the Old Testament or the Torah, and its followers represent the ancient Jews, the first monotheists. When he impregnates mother, the impregnation of the Virgin Mary, because now apparently mother is both the Virgin Mary and Mother Earth. Yeah. This is where I'm talking about the metaphors fall apart. He is suddenly inspired to write something new, which earns him even more followers. This second work represents the New Testament, or the basis of Christianity. The explosion of his fan base after the second book may reflect the fact that Christianity has far more followers than Judaism. This is effectively the movie. <laughs> but we're going to go through, you know, some key events and moments and things that we thought were interesting or worth commenting on. But yes... This is the metaphor straight from the fucking horse's mouth, okay? So there's no question that this is what it's about. We're not reading into anything, and we're not 
misanalyzing anything here. Yeah. So I mean, it's can, so obvious. Like I don't unless we, you haven't read the Bible, this should be obvious to you. Right. I just wanted to make sure that we got this part out of the way. So we assume that at the very, very beginning, when we first see her burning alive and crying, that's most likely the end of the dinosaurs. Yeah, because we'll find out later that when we see Mother Earth crying in the middle of the burning house, that that's the end of the world. Yeah. You know, because we get that. It's revelation at the end of this movie in... The beginning, it must be another revelation of some sort. Maybe it's when the meteor came and destroyed all the dinosaurs. Maybe. Because when else has there been a revelation time prior to humans existing? There's an adorable comic strip of God (laughs) seeing what his angels, what his workers are working on. And he sees that they've created the dog. And he's like, oh, my God, this is the cutest thing ever. Put it on Earth now. And they're like, we can't put it on Earth yet. Uh, the dinosaurs will surely uh, eat them. Nuke the, di- nuke the lizards. <laughs> <laughs> God makes Earth. And what we see is him putting something on the shelf, which, as Chris said, will become the... It's, it's supposed to represent the tree of knowledge, the apple or the red fruit that Eve eats. Mm-hmm. And they do an okay job of showing you, oh, don't go in there, don't touch that. Oh, no, you touched it, you ruined it. But the problem here is that... It's forbidden knowledge. It's knowledge. Right, but you eat Everyone wants to look past that. Everyone just wants to say, oh, Adam and Eve, they fucked over humanity. Yeah, because God didn't want us to be intelligent beings. Well... Is that not a problem for you? It depends on how you interpret it. Because some people also interpret it as it's all of the things that humanity doesn't need to know in order to be happy. Right. You know, it's all the evil in the world. It's shame. It's things like that. They don't know any better in order to cover themselves in shame. And yet, what did Christians go and do with their yeah, shame knowledge? People, yeah, uh-huh. They went and shamed the rest of the world. for. But anyway, also, <laughs> he keeps people out of there. Like, yes, eventually he does kick them out of the study, thus them being expelled from Eden. Yeah. But neither Mother Nature nor him wants them in there without him there throughout, like, prior to that. So, again, not going to overcomplicate it, not going to overdiscuss, but yes, it does fall apart there, too. When Jennifer Lawrence first wakes up and starts to move around the house... I couldn't tell if they wanted us to feel like her actions were rehearsed to show us that this has all happened again and will continue to happen. I can't tell it or if they just wanted her to walk around the house and show us the house and it just feels super rehearsed. I couldn't tell what he was what, what he was going for there. Also, of course, we have to see nipples, we have to see butt crack. <laughs> These are all natural things that, you know. And she's barefoot. She's barefoot the entire movie. She never wears anything on her feet the entire movie. I think that was actually Jennifer Lawrence's idea. that Because she dated Aronofsky for a while when they were making this movie. And apparently that was this was her con- one of her contributions to the movie. It shows her connection to the house, you know. Earth. I get it. <laughs> it's not a complicated metaphor. <laughs> she is working on painting the house. Of course, she's using earth tones. He is... Obviously frustrated and bored, he can't come up with anything uh-huh. uh, for writing, I guess. And the idea is that Earth is always very quiet. I mean, Earth 
all it does is provide. So, you know, he treat he mistreats her and he's rude to her and he's mean to her and she just doesn't say anything. She just keeps her mouth shut. She's so in awe. She's so in love with him. The problem there is that God only creates things that are going to love him. And yet humans are terrible to him. But Earth loves him. We're not going to solve religion here. Kelsey. But the problem is that, <laughs> yeah, Earth loves him because Earth doesn't have a choice. Right. So. Because the Earth is his creation, too, which we saw in the beginning. When he put that, the apple, the perfect crystal, back in his heart. study. It, yeah, it, well, you know, it's it's her heart. He took it from the mother that died at the beginning of this movie and it and it brings the house back to life and then she ma- magically materializes and wakes up in the morning now wasn't it her in the very first shot no it wasn't it wasn't her no 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 no, no. it's it's multiple women so there's there's three mothers in this movie and Jennifer Lawrence is the one that we see for the bulk of it. But at the very beginning of the movie, it's one. That's a different it's woman. It's a different woman. And at the end of the movie, it's a different woman, too. Yeah. I remember, I, I I didn't remember that it was a different woman. And at the end, when it was, I was like, whoa, I forgot about that. <laughs> you know, kind of Lawrence? Look vaguely similar. And yes. But yes, she is also a creation of him. And so Javier Bardem, him, he... He kind of has this control so over her. Why does God give us a choice but not Earth? Why do we get to fuck up Earth, but Earth doesn't get to fuck us up? This isn't the first time I've brought this up, but Neil Gaiman has a story called Murder Mysteries, which examines the same thing between humans and angels. Is that, you know, why is it that he confers all this shit on humans and angels, his perfect servants? You know, we're treated well, like shit. Yeah, I guess they do deal with that in a lot of things. They deal with yeah. that in Supernatural. They deal mm-hmm. with that in The Good Omens. Yeah. Yeah. So Which shit? Neil Gaiman again. So, <laughs> yeah. I guess that's that's nothing new. Okay. So we meet Adam and Eve, who are played by... Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer. I never remember his name, Ed Harris. And I don't get why Ed Harris is sick. I don't get what his illness is supposed to be about. Unless that's just supposed to lead into the fact that he was worried about his will, which is why his sons are at odds. But so he shows up. He's a doctor who now teaches. He's a podiatrist. Yes, who's very, very sick. And Jennifer Lawrence is making it incredibly obvious that she does not want him to stay. But Javier Bardem just... Come on in, stay as long as you'd like. I don't care what you do to my house. She full on tells him, don't smoke in here, and he will continue to smoke inside the house because he just doesn't care, and God never punishes him for it. Right, and we're talking about this will happen throughout the movie. People will disregard mother's wishes about the house. Yes. She is generally confused through much of the movie, but in this case, it's by man's presence, man being Ed Harris, and his, Javier Bardem's, eagerness about his presence and being magnanimous about their hospitality without consulting her. Now, here's my problem. But she still accommodates him all the same. Here's my problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, they're going to do certain things here in this conversation. Like, they're going to say, like, oh, he's so old and she's so young. Ah, make the metaphor a little more clear, why don't you? Oh, do you want a drink? Does your wife drink? No, my wife doesn't drink. Yes, I do. Do you want some? No. Okay, like, I get that Earth is supposed to be natural. Yeah. Where do you think alcohol and tobacco come from? Right. 
also she takes this <laughs> she takes this magic powder to feel better and they never never explain what that is. Yeah. And It's not part of the metaphor. And like they kind of so it's like this yellow stuff and it always makes her calm down and get straight laced, right? And it almost seems like it's some sort of like prescription yeah because later when she gets pregnant she'll pour that down the drain yeah, have to stop taking it as if like this isn't good for the baby and i'm like yeah they never connect it to anything what? <laughs> like, right so you're telling me that things that are like i get it earth makes things like marijuana right you probably shouldn't smoke marijuana when you're pregnant but when you're in pain marijuana is made by earth it is supposed to help you with pain so maybe that's what he's showing us that right, like everything in moderation like cyanide is also also comes from nature like, there's a lot of things that come from nature things being natural mean jack shit there are a lot of things that are unnatural that are great there are a lot of things that are natural that are awful and vice versa <laughs> things being natural doesn't mean jack <laughs> he will also i think it might be later that he says this but he'll talk about the fact that like oh you know we definitely want kids and this place is always so we've always talked about how big this place is and we want to fill it up with kids and she's sitting there like well not till we're done <laughs> doesn't she make the point that she wants to finish the house that's first? her lie that's yeah, what she uh -huh. says she says oh well he's working on his writing and i'm working on the house we don't have time right now but you can see from her face and she will tell us later no absolutely not i wanted kids he's the one that's been putting it off he's the one that hasn't been wanting to do it and, and she'll accuse him later you won't even fuck me Right, and I don't know what that's supposed to mean in this metaphor. Is, is that God not paying enough attention to the needs of Earth? Yeah, like, I don't... Um, did God give Jesus for Earth and then we misunderstood it? Like, I don't... There are certain things, and Chris makes an excellent point, that when you try to force it all into one metaphor... Things are like, you know, it's when you have a big lump of clay mm -hmm. and you try to put it into a ball, pieces are going to squirt out. And that's what's happening here. Parts of this metaphor are excess and are just bubbling up mm -hmm. over the top and it's no longer making sense. Right. And you can bend over backwards to try to fit it into the metaphor, but it's only going to expose more of that. Right. So... I guess we just have to say, oh, well, these are just things that he just decided to put in yeah. to create a character, which right. I don't know why you're building character if you just want them to represent well, Earth and God. This is the problem with personifying nature and other things that are not actual people, is that it forces you to consider its agency, although it has none. So, for instance... You might come to the conclusion that Jennifer Lawrence in this movie is weak, and you might resent her for being weak. But that's and, just the way she's made. And not speaking out against Javier Bardem and standing up for herself and not speaking louder and not saying no earlier. And you might resent her for being weak instead of... In the reality of the metaphor is that she's nature and she has no personification. She has so no voice. 100% of the blame falls on him. Yes. But because you've personified nature, now not all of it, not even most of it, not even half of it, but some of the blame falls on her and you might end up resenting her for that. And that's unfortunate because 
when you're presenting the metaphor, you're you're supposed to be, or I think Aronofsky is trying to be sympathetic to nature. Absolutely. But now you're exposing her to re- to potential resentment, and that's the problem with personifying her. Yeah. It should have been more that she did certain things to try and stop these things from happening, and God just ended it at every will. But right. he, but here's Put the it problem. More on God's plate. Yeah, but here's the problem with that. Then you just have an abusive relationship. Is right. that what we wanted to watch this movie for? In this case, he's just inconsiderate. And every <laughs> single time he does all this shit, it's like, I mean, you kind of want to like him because he's he's always thinking about other people, but just never about Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, but he's only thinking of other people insofar as they make him feel good about himself. Right. Yes. This movie really is an indictment of God. Like, the of more... Of God and man, equally, yeah. I don't know. The more I'm thinking about it, the more it's like, this, if God does exist, everything is God's fault. No, I think it's it's that, it's that humans are multitudinous and diverse in a way that causes chaos and destruction. God, who created them, has a lot of control and refuses to wield it in any way that protects Earth or nature. And... There you go. It's an indictment of both of them. She does say to him, he's a stranger, but that's pretty much all she says. And before yeah. you know it, he has invited him to stay the night. Ed Harris will admit, I've read your work many times. Your words have changed my life. Later, we'll come to find out that, no, he came because earlier his excuses, he came because he thought it was a bed and breakfast. Later, you find out that, no, he's just obsessed with Javier Bardem, like a worshiper, a good Jewish person. And so he's come to pay homage to him. During the course of this night, they will have conversations where Javier Bardem will explain that it's all because of Jennifer Lawrence's character, that he is where he is today. She brought life to every room in this house. You know, she's life. Yes. She she brings Earth to life. But even after he says that nice thing about her, she's so irritated with him. She's like, I'm just going to go to bed. Yeah. She wakes up in the middle of the night to find Ed Harris retching, which again. And you see a little mark on his back where his ribs are. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, you know, they do go out and they have these private talks and stuff like that. And that's part of Adam communing with God. And he tells her, you know, he loves my work. He, he thinks I'm so amazing. And she's like, I love your work, too. Right. But for whatever reason, he seems way more excited that Ed Harris loved his work mm-hmm. than his wife. You did. know, let, let's let's be real a little bit here. I love you, Kelsey. Of course I do. I married you. You married me. If I was to write something that you enjoyed, it would make me very happy. If a stranger also enjoyed it, that would probably excite me more. Cool. No, no, no. I'm saying, like, <laughs> let's be real. I think it's probably because there's there's almost an expectation that, like, it... I, you don't think I would be honest with you? No. I think you would be honest with me. But it's more surprising and therefore more exciting if a stranger is excited by something you've done, then if somebody that's close to you is excited by something you've done. Does that make sense? I understand. I also see it from her perspective. But I, no, I think like rationally, of course, my priority is to make you happy. <laughs> but I could see why somebody might be more excited by a stranger, you know, showing that same appreciation than a loved one. Okay, I agree. I understand what you're saying. So the next morning, she's making breakfast, 
And Michelle Pfeiffer shows up. And this is Eve. Yep. Okay. And Eve is right off the bat. And Michelle Pfeiffer plays her. Oh, she's so good in this. She she's she is exactly what men have perceived Eve to be <laughs> since day one. She walks in. She blames everything on the other chick. Uh-huh. Right? She she burns her hands and blames Jennifer Lawrence for I it. I mean, not really blames, but like it's not like, yeah, you told me not to do this and I did it anyway, so it's entirely my fault. It's like, no, 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 it's my fault. Like, you know, in the way that's like, oh, I'm just absolving you of guilt, aren't I magnanimous? Yeah. And she They'll kind of make her into an alcoholic, and so that kind of is why she'll go for the heart yeah, or the, the tree of knowledge, I guess. And I guess you could say, so alcohol is kind of like the snake in this situation. Yeah, there is no Satan in this movie. Right. Or demon, if you don't believe that the snake was literally Satan. And Michelle Pfeiffer will be very cr- rude to Jennifer Lawrence, but rude in that she's being honest. Honest to the point of rude. Yeah, and a little manipulative, and yeah, she's just over the top and offensive. She's the one who singles out that Jennifer Lawrence wants to have kids, but he doesn't, and it's because they're not having sex, and that's also probably Jennifer Lawrence's fault because she doesn't dress sexy enough, and it's this whole thing, and she's constantly disregarding. She personifies the evil side of Eve, and I don't know why he would do that. Like, it's just like, you already have a female character that is completely, and I know it's not her fault, but she's completely weak. She can't do anything. Then we have a character who can do whatever she wants, and how does she use that? She uses it to be a bitch and to Mm -hmm. be evil. But again, remember, this isn't a story that he's trying to construct on its own. He's trying to fit this into one larger metaphor. But here's my problem. The story of Adam and Eve can be read two ways. It can be read that way. Or it can be read the way I have always read it, and the way that I've never understood why the majority of people do not read it. She was manipulated, first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, what kind of a leader yeah. says, I'll give you anything and everything. You have to trust me implicitly. Here's this one thing. You can't have it, though. Okay? If you do, everything will fall apart. So just don't touch that one thing. You don't need it. And then you're manipulated into taking it to find out that what he was keeping from you was knowledge. And that is fucked. Oh, yeah. No, then it's a big guilt complex about how this is all your fault. And now and now you feel pain and now you feel shame and all of this stuff. And I could take it away from you. But you know what? You made the decision not to take it. So now all these bad things are going to happen. Like, it's, yeah, no, it's fucked, it's fucked, but again, we're not going to solve religion here. With the quarantine <laughs> getting us stuck inside, I've uh, started to rewatch um, a show that I once loved uh, called Once Upon a Time, <laughs> and there's an episode I just watched, and I'm, it's so funny because it's Disney. So it's supposed to be there's these two characters and they want to get rid of magic, but the truth is, is that they've always been working for Peter Pan and they didn't know it, right? And the the sure. Kid, nonsense, folks. And the kid character is like, good thing you don't ask questions. And it's just like, right there. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't ask questions. Who am I following? What do I believe in? Guess I'll just follow what the story tells me to. Mm-hmm. 
<gasps> oh, yeah. And in case you didn't know, in this universe, Peter Pan is evil. <laughs> anyway, well, he's kind of a dick in, in the book. Too. Yes. <laughs> anyway, we then learn about their children. Yes. So this is, oh, fuck. I'm going to fuck this up. I'm really going to fuck this up. Is it, is it Donald? Okay, because the name is pronounced Domnail Gleason, and I can never know how to pronounce his name because it's Irish, and it's like a Gaelic pronunciation, and I'm no good at that. <laughs> so him and his brother Brian, which is really fucking easy, the <laughs> actual brothers in real life. Who are they? Yes, yes. That guy's in Harry Potter, but he's also in About Time. Domnail Gleason? The redhead. Yeah, he's also in... Fucking Star Wars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forget that he's in Star Wars. He's in a lot of things. He's in the Ex Machina. Yes. As the idiot. <laughs> the one totally, who gets fooled. The one who gets totally played. Yes. So he is Kane and his actual brother, Brian Gleason, plays Abel, but they're just labeled never in as... I, I don't know. Maybe he is and we just don't recognize him. They're just labeled as younger brother and oldest son. And they're arguing because they know that their father is dying and the older brother or oldest son, Cain, found out that he changed his will to put everything into a trust that's going to be managed by Michelle Pfeiffer, who they never say outright, but I think the implication is, is that Cain's mom isn't Eve, isn't Michelle Pfeiffer, and... Oh, I didn't pick up and, on that. And... But she is Abel's mom, and or or whatever the case may be, she at least prefers Abel. So that that's why he's upset because if I want to fucking sneeze or whatever it is or take a shit or whatever it is the line he says, I'm gonna have to consult her, and you know she's gonna side with him every time. Dad, it's a trust. You have to make a decision as a group before anything can be spent. It won't work. I have to get permission from them every time I take a talk piss. to get along. That's the most she important thing. Side with him. You're not even listening time. to me. No, no. Support me. You just want to tell me what I can and can't do. That is do. not fair. You never believe in me or anything I try to do. Don't do this, Dad. They hate me. Oh, come on, they don't hate Like, that's his problem, is he's getting screwed over out of his inheritance this way. Now, did you look up the story of Cain and Abel? Okay, so the story in the Bible is that Cain offers God his, his harvest, like his fruit. An offering. An offering, yes. And since he's the oldest, his offering should be accepted first, right? Abel offers some of his flock as a sacrifice. And God looks on positively Abel's sacrifice of his flock more so than Cain's offering of his fruit. And that makes Cain jealous because it is also his right as the oldest to be accepted first, let alone looked on most favorably. And that pisses him off. So, among other things, Cain kills Abel. And then when God asks him about it, knowing full well exactly what happened, <laughs> Cain lies to him. <laughs> so, there's that. You're God and you don't know, but I'm going to lie to you anyway. Yes. <laughs> there's also something in here about the earth being cursed to drink Abel's blood till the end of time or something like that. That's why when after... Oh, God, this is so weird. Okay, so Javier Bardem, in an effort to keep them out of the study after after they break the crystal, snaps off the handle off the door. 
and it rolls down and it and it scars the floor downstairs and Jennifer Lawrence picks it up and puts it on the mantelpiece or whatever, right? And Kane uses that to attack his brother and blood gets everywhere and it gets all over him. And when he grabs her and pleads with her to help him and understand what he's, he's going through. Black mark. Well, yeah, he's got he's got the mark on his face and he's getting blood on her at that as that happens and drinking Abel's blood. But yes, he's pleading with her to understand and he ends up running off. He is also banished from God's sight. He goes to like Nod or something like that. He starts his own people, but he's also given a mark of protection from God. And you can look at that however you want to look at that. It's interpreted it's interpreted a number of different ways by a number of different people, all in different subsects of religions and stuff. But the point is, is that Cain, while being the first murderer, is also under God's protection. But this is where the term Am I My Brother's Keeper comes from. Because God asks him, hey, hey, Cain, where's Abel? Like, what? why would I know? Am I my brother's keeper? One little weird thing that we didn't mention about Ed Harris's weird illness. When she goes to clean up, because he leaves tissues with blood all over the place, and she goes to flush it down the toilet. Yeah, it's like this weird sort of alien blob organism with tentacles and, and stuff like that. And at her. Uh-huh. What is that? I think it's man's corrupting influence on the earth. We create weird creatures. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> oh, by the way, what does she find Michelle Pfeiffer and Ed Harris doing as soon as they're uh, sent out of the study? Fucking. Yes. Yes. And then when she comes back, get this, when she comes back and is going to tell them, you need to get the fuck out of here. Michelle Pfeiffer opens the door and is like, what? And she's wearing a different bra. It's a green bra with a leaf pattern. Get it? Because now they're covering themselves Jesus. with leaves. Do you get it? So, Javier Bardem will leave with Michelle Pfeiffer, Ed Harris, and the dying son. That's when the older brother, Kane, will come back and do the whole spitting on her and yelling at her. Uh, but the weird thing is, is that he's like, he left you all alone? Yeah. It's like even humans are weirded out by the fact that God doesn't seem to give a shit about her. Yes. Uh -huh. There is also now a red stain on their floor that she cannot get rid of. Yes. It's like a festering wound. Mm -hmm. It bleeds through things. Mm -hmm. Then there's like blood coming from that 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 hole so like it's kind of a hole that kind of if you could imagine like a, a pole running through their whole house every yeah. time it hits a floor that's where it's that like that scene in alien when they follow the acid down right exactly and she follows it and like the blood is trickling down like a bulb and the bulb explodes hey, the bulb shatters it reminds me a little bit of one of the evil deads like i can't remember if it's one or two where blood gets splattered over the bulb on the outside and it paints everything red. The lighting changes to red and all of that. It's not unique to Evil Dead, but that's what it reminds me of. And then, except this one is, it's dripping inside. Mm. And then, then the whole bulb shatters. She then like finds like a secret room and there's like a frog in there and it frightens her. Like it doesn't frighten her, but it like, ugh, like startles here. And I'm like, what does any of this have to do with the metaphor? I can't. I couldn't figure it out. And, um, like she's finding secret things about the house. Like, right. does nature not know about Earth? Is exactly. That what it's and why would Earth be startled by a frog? Uh huh. 
Unless, are these supposed to be, like, the things from Egypt? But doesn't that happen after the flood? I don't know. I don't remember. But in any case, she does stumble upon all the oil, which she will later use to set fire to the house. Javier Bardem comes home. They go to bed. In the middle of the night, she wakes up and there are people coming into their house. And he's like, oh, they got here fast. And it turns out that he invited all of this family to come to their house to mourn this son that Mm -hmm. died. And she's just like, what the fuck? And remember, so this happens in the middle of the night. So she's doing everything in a nightgown, which later Michelle Pfeiffer will shame her for. Yes. The least you could do is dress appropriately or whatever. She looks down, sees her nipples, and it's like, oh, God. One of the things I really like about the cinematography in this movie, though, is that for a majority of the movie, we are... Looking at Jennifer Lawrence in a sort of mid to close up, we are following Jennifer Lawrence or we are seeing from her perspective. And I appreciated that. It centers her as the subject of this movie. Yes. So like, yeah, the camera is either putting her right in the middle or we're seeing from her perspective. Pfeiffer will roll her eyes when she provides condolences. The people around her are just breaking things. They're completely inconsiderate. They don't care. She tries to, again, console Pfeiffer, and she says, I can't even imagine. And she goes, no, you can't. You don't have a kid. She says, you give and you give and you give, and it's never enough. Which parallels Earth. Yes, she's giving and giving and giving, and it's never enough. So the idea that mothers, just in general, are never appreciated as much as they probably should be right is probably a good point yes right so that's the funny thing though is that pfeiffer so self-centered can't understand that right this mother is doing the exact same thing just in a completely different just for a different person right she can only see the sacrifices that she's making right and not that there's that that the earth is making similar sacrifices exactly or i guess mother nature sorry the earth is the house and this is around the part where I wrote, this movie wants to be infuriating and it's very successful. Yes. Uh, oh, very much so. But the problem is, is like, I got it. Do you just want to make me angry for another hour and a half? Sure. <laughs> right. It still has to be entertaining. Yeah, you know? Exactly. And so none of the people are listening. She keeps telling them to get off of the the not braced sink, which is what's going to cause the flood, which is going to cause everyone to leave. There's also this weird dude who like wants to the cupbearer, yeah, uh huh, yeah, who like wants to fuck her. Super random. Well, he also wants to fuck this other girl and do that in their room. And it's like, you can't do that in here, but things, but basically people no, are starting are to take over the house. people. Okay, well. Because one's black and one's white. <laughs> oh, oh, you're talking, no, 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 I was talking about the cupbearer who is the black guy, and he's the guy that wants to fuck the girl. Yes, there is this other guy who is like, wow, you're hot. Which I guess is just an indictment of humanity. All we think about is sex and we're all self-centered and we don't care about anybody or anything. And we will fuck things up until we can't fuck them up any further. They end up breaking the the sink. It floods. They leave. Yes. This is the first opportunity to completely remove humanity from the house. And what does she do as soon as everyone's gone? Starts cleaning. Yep. That's exactly what Mother Earth does. I mean, we're seeing it now with this quarantine. The air is clear. 
There's no pollution. <laughs> well, okay, let's be clear here. Uh-huh. It's getting better. It's getting better. But what we're noticing is that individual contributions to pollution are not going to fix things. <laughs> it's going to take large-scale efforts. But still. Yes. Like, it, it's true. Earth, if given the chance, mm-hmm. if given a little bit of time, it could fix things. We just... We're humans, and we're self-centered, and we say, you know what? I gotta go to work, so... Yep. Fuck it. Mm Mm-hmm. She kind of starts to talk to God a little bit, pushing him a little bit, saying, why haven't you been writing anything? And that is when he will freak out and say, I'm suffocating in here. I need new people. At Mm -hmm. the very least, these people came in, and they were telling me new stories. I was getting something exciting out of life. Right. And she's just like, well, if you want excitement, why don't you fuck me? And they do. And they do. Passionate lovemaking. And she's really happy the next morning. Apparently, people, apparently we're the weirdos, Chris. Yeah. People just have sex in the middle of fights. It's weird. (laughs) Let's be honest. It's things that happen in movies. Some people might do that. But it's weird. It's very strange. It's weird. The I don't. Last thing I don't I want to do when we're in a fight. Exactly. <laughs> I don't look at sex as an aggressive act. To it's not something I want to do when I'm, when I'm angry. Yes, exactly. I don't know. Anyway, but we're probably the weirdos. Yeah, we're apparently the weirdos. Apparently, the fact that we love each other is weird. <laughs> but anyway, it fades to white, which it will do. I think one other time in the movie, and she wakes up in the morning aware that she is now pregnant. And Javier Bardem, butt-ass naked, (laughs) hops out of bed, because this is the inspiration that he needed. And he starts to write again. And she's like, oh, well, then I'll get out of your way. I'll go clean. You write. (laughs) And he has her read it. And all we see is an image of basically them holding hands and the house being brought back to life. Yeah, this is a time lapse right here. Enough time for her to get, like... Further along in her pregnancy. She's in the third trimester now. And he's done writing. Yeah, so she reads it. And she's just like, oh my god, that's beautiful. And then- you're crying though. And he's like, it's just, uh, it's a lot. Is what she says. And immediately, what happens? The phone rings. The phone rings! And who is it? It is his agent. His publisher. Yes, who is Kristen Wiig. Randomly. In her- First, I want to say completely dramatic role. She's been in dramedies before yes. this movie, mm-hmm. but this is a 100% drama. Like, she's not here. The funniest thing that happens to her is she blows up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of funny. <laughs> but he's like, oh my God, they loved it. And she's like, what do they you They read it too? What, you what? Just, you said you just finished it, and now I read it. And this is kind of where Aronofsky Are we supposed to say nature's selfish and once like is jealous. Oh, that's not where I was going. That's uh-huh. an interesting question. No, I think it's I think it's God needing praise. Oh, yes. yes. Needing yes. Yes, yes, worship. yes. Very, very, very much so. God is a jealous God. We know that it's fucking in the book. <laughs> he has human failings. But this is where Aronofsky will really start to quicken the pace. Yes. There is a lot that's going to happen here in a very small amount of time. 
So the idea that he already sent it out, how could he? That's not the point. Right. The point is that he doesn't care what Earth thinks. He needs people to love him. So he's already sent it out. So let's not worry about how he did it. Not important. Right. Things are just going to start escalating. And that's one of the things that I remember about this movie is I remember being just completely enamored with the escalation. Whether or not the movie was any good is besides the point. I was just enraptured with the escalation. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger than you would ever imagine it could get. They're like. Like, whatever, if you haven't seen the movie and you're just listening to us talk, you might have heard us say comments about stuff that happens towards the end. And you're like, well, how does it get there? It just does. Yeah, it kind of just does. It just (laughs) goes there. And it escalates uh, to places that naturally couldn't happen. And it's going to use devices like this, where suddenly his agent or his publisher has the copy and it's impossible for that to have happened. The movie does not care. It's just going to start escalating. Yeah. She's dressed like a Grecian goddess here. She's Yes, it's she's beautiful and <laughs> resplendent in her pregnancy. Yes, which <laughs> I've known a lot of pregnant women, okay? You know that pregnant glow that makes you beautiful. The only people I know that say that pregnancy was a good thing are the people that have talked to me about it after Yes. I have not known a single pregnant woman who during the pregnancy was like, my life is peaches and roses. <laughs> I can feel the the life inside me and I'm feeling so good inside. No. Every pregnant woman I have known is just like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I just want this to be me. over. Get this thing out of me. <laughs> and you don't want to sit down there and work for hours On an to do your hair piece. and your makeup yeah. and, and and do things around the house and yeah you just do not want to do that stuff but that's if nature. If I ever decide to have a kid, God help Chris. <laughs> nature gives and gives and gives. <laughs> but yeah, so she's made this enormous feast and because the book has done very very well. So it's supposed to be a celebration. But unfortunately, the fans have come and flocked to their house. On this night of celebration. And they are ruining it. And she's upset because she overhears one of them say to him, I feel like the the words were written for me. And he goes, of course they were. Yes. When we know they're supposed to be written for her. Exactly. She is very frustrated when he finally comes in. She's just like, "Why why am I and our baby not enough for you? Which he will answer far later in the film. At the very end, he will say, Nothing is ever enough. I couldn't create if it was. And I have to. That's what I do. That's where I am. If I don't create, I'm not happy. Yeah. I Nothing will ever be enough. And I guess you could read God that way. That's one way sure. of interpreting him is that he's a he's a kid in a sandbox and mm-hmm. if he's not constantly making something it's not fun. Right. But I mean imagine imagine being a parent and having a kid because you made a decision to have a kid and then that kid isn't gracious enough so you're mad at the kid. Like the kid asked to be brought into this world. 
Well, a lot of parents are I like know, that. I know. So anyway, let okay, things are going to start escalating in crazy, crazy ways, and we're not going to break down because it's just not going to make sense. I'm I'm going to just list things from one event to the next, and Kelsey, you stop me when you want to talk about well, it. Well, first of all, why do the people come inside? What does the poet, as they call him, say? It's everyone's house. Oh, right. Everyone yeah. is mm. welcome here. Right. And she's like, excuse me. <laughs> this is our house. And I get an, get a say and you're being magnanimous with our But house. just like humans, uh-huh. come and eat, take what you need uh-huh. is never what people listen to. Yes. All they hear is, I can take what I want. Yes. Okay, then I'm going to take everything. Yes. And that's a huge problem with humanity is that people don't take what they need. They half the time don't even take what they want. They simply take what's Mm. available. So what happens here is there's a what appears to be a homeless man sleeping there. And she's like, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, he said that we can sleep here. And then he finds a woman and her kid looking for the bathroom. And she's like, you got to get out of here. And the woman's like, but my kid, he's peeing his pants. We need, and she's like, oh, okay, well let's get that taken care of. But then, then you have to leave. And then when she gets to the bathroom though, there's this other dude just like using the bathroom. And there's a line. And then then she sees there's a line for the bathroom and she's like, what's going on? And then she notices that people start taking things. She goes to call the police but then somebody takes the phone out of her hand and then somebody grabs the phone and just steals it off the wall. And it's just escalating in this way. People are starting to steal things. And when she asks why, they say that it's souvenirs to prove they've been there. She does try to talk to him, to God. She says, you know, they're taking things. And his response is, they are just things. They can be replaced. Which I don't know what Aronofsky's trying to make a point about there. Should we just let people take whatever we want? Because otherwise we're being selfish? I don't know what your point is. Yeah. Jesus, at the very least, Jesus said we should absolutely be giving things to the poor. Absolutely. Stuff you don't need, Mm -hmm. give it to the poor. Well, he also said give rid of all of your worldly possessions. But he also says at one point, I think it's Judas says, how dare she, Mary Magdalena, brought in water for nothing but your feet for a massage? That's not okay. That money could have been given to the poor. And Jesus says, she wanted to do something nice for me. And There's nothing wrong with people wanting to, to do things for other people. And if that requires money, okay. But that's also where you get, like, the greed doctrines. And, <laughs> and that's where you get all those... those television pastors and preachers and shit like that that end up saying that oh greed means success which means god loves me it's how god shows his love and appreciation for what i'm doing and that just means good things when in reality jesus was trying to show us balance yeah mm -hmm. and there's people that take it too far one side and there's people that take it way too far on the other side so eventually things get out of control and hundreds of people are in the house and it's just fucking chaos They start to make up bizarre rituals, which look ridiculous when put in this 
in yep, this. Um, but it's it's just a translation, yeah. a sped up, shrunk down version of the evolution of religion. It's all it is. I wrote down, I am now dreading the last 30 minutes. <laughs> well, I, I know what's about to happen. This is the divisive part of the movie where you either lose somebody or people go, that was fucking nuts. I stopped writing until the very end. There is one thing I, I okay. wrote down. So Everything I'll else, you go ahead. Okay. <laughs> So then we end up getting a cult. We should probably point out that there is a character here who's called the Zealot, played by Stephen McCaddy, who is Grant Massey from Pontypool. He's also the original Night Owl from Watchmen. I was going to say, I thought he was recognized. I yes. thought I recognized him. He's in Pontypool. Yes. Cool. And he was in Aronofsky's The Fountain prior to this. Mm. So he's going to play a big part. He's basically the leader of the religion, right? He's the Pope. He's the zealot, though, is basically the point. Then there are there end up being clashes between protesters, cults, the military ends up showing up, and she starts freaking out. And rooms are being torn apart. There are religious rituals being conducted. There's gunfire. There's bombs going off. Kristen Wiig starts ordering executions and then starts ordering that Kristen Wiig, who effectively represents the church... Because she's the publisher of his of his book, mm-hmm. uh, starts ordering executions, and now we're into the Inquisition area of of time. But also is going to have Mother Nature executed. And then a bomb goes off and blows up <laughs> Kristen Wiig. <laughs> she just blows up. She gets found by these sex traders who have a bunch of slaves in cages now and then they're checking her teeth Mm -hmm. to see is she quality goods or whatever and she's rescued by this military figure this military person who comes and saves her who represents what do you think he is the only part of all of this chaos that i bothered to write down i told chris right before it started i was like okay i'm putting my phone down if anything in here surprises me I'll write it down, because as far as I remember, we're just about to see a bunch of shit. Uh A bunch of humans being shitty to other humans. Then comes this soldier who sees her, and she, at this point, is in labor. She's going into labor, yes. And his immediate response is, we need to get you to safety. Yeah. He's like, oh shit, we need to get you up here. And and he's starting to talk her through it, immediately killed. Yes, his head. And I think this moment is... Very important, even though I'm not positive what Aronofsky wants me to get out of it. Uh Uh-huh. Because here, out of all of this madness, we find one person who seems to give a shit about Jennifer Lawrence. Amidst everything, even with his own life on the line, he cares about this person. Whether or not it's because she's in labor is kind of irrelevant. Whether or not it's because she's a woman is also kind of irrelevant. He sees someone in need and he stops what he's doing to help her. This can be interpreted in a number of ways. It could just be just surface level. Aronofsky said, hey, we're not all shitty, but even if we aren't, we're just going to kill off the good ones anyway. Okay? Yeah. If you want to take it on that base surface level, you can. But you can also read into it as, is Aronofsky saying something about soldiers? Is he saying something about the young people who become soldiers because they want to save people? 
Is that what he's talking about here? Or is he trying to say that not everyone is awful? I think there it's are more, truly good people in this world. I think that's it. And unfortunately, they're far and few between. But then why specifically make it a soldier? Well, because this is a war zone now. Right. And that's he how you represent. He could have made it anybody. He could have made it anything. This is chaos. He could have made anything here. Right. He chose for it to be no, but specifically the, a soldier. But the visuals he's using is literally a war zone. It's blasted out walls. It's gunfire. It's a war zone. So which you're going also, to have a soldier. Which is also interesting, though. There's not a person in the sex trading outfit that's like, oh, shit, we should try and help you. There's not somebody. They're, cr- they're crying out for help. Right. Yeah. But there's nobody to help her. Yeah. There's nobody to help them. There's nobody who's trying, like, there's not another mother there who understand mm-hmm. what she's going through. You know, he very specifically chose a soldier. And that's really interesting to me. Is he saying that even in the times of the most chaos, when everyone is killing everyone, that's when we shine? I don't, what I don't think, what I can't imagine is the case, <laughs> is that hippie scarf wearer. Darren Aronofsky saying that soldiers are good thinks people. Thinks that, yes, just inherently soldiers represent goodness. <laughs> I do not think that's what he's saying. But if you're going to make the point, if, if, if the setting of your movie is now a war zone and you're trying to make the point that there are good people out there, that you could do that with a soldier, you know, because in the same way. There are good soldiers out there. There are lots of good soldiers out there. The fact that he's killed right away, though, uh it leads me to believe that we were just supposed to take the surface level thing of, there's some good people, but they're fucked But they're going to die anyway. (laughs) But the point is, she goes into labor. Javier Bardem finds her and wants to save her, but he refuses to get her out of the house. They just need to get further into the house. And, of course, really the only reason he wants to save her is because she's pregnant with his child. Right. And the zealot, Grant Massey, ends up helping them up the stairs and into the study where Javier Bardem expels everyone and tells the zealot to close the door and 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 him on the other side of it, too. Right. And he does. And there it's just the two of them. And she ends up giving birth to a baby boy who she refuses to let out of her hands because now she doesn't trust Javier Bardem. Yeah, he actually goes to open it. She's like, don't do that. Don't do that. But it's because they've quieted down and they've given offerings. They've given fruit and they've given water. Yes. and But she's like, no, I don't. Who knows what you're going to do with my son? If you're giving away everything we have and everything that's us. And now this is what we're dealing with. I don't trust you with our son. And he's like, let me hold him. No. I'm his father. I'm his mother. And he's like, they're waiting though. They they want to see him, and she's just and she's, she's just like, like I no, don't care. Make them go, yes. please. Make them go. And he refuses to. And there's this really interesting sort of standoff where she then nurses the baby, and he brings a chair close, sits on the edge of that, and just stares at her. Yeah. They, they'll also give her clean clothes. Like, he's trying to say, no, mm-hmm. look, see, they're nice. And, but also, um, can I take the baby while you change? And she's like, no. And she ends up changing one-handed in order to hold on to the baby. Mm-hmm. And she says, make them leave. And he says, I don't want them to go. Uh-huh. And what him wants is more important than what she wants. 
Yes. She ends up eventually from exhaustion falling asleep and she wakes up and realizes the baby isn't in her arms anymore. I mean, as soon as the baby was gone, I was like, this is going to be horrific. Like, I just knew it. So I'm I'm pretty surprised that people were shocked at this moment. Because at this point, I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. This, right. whatever we're about to see is going to be real bad. And it, <laughs> and it is. She freaks out because he's taking the baby outside and he hands it over to the worshipers. The baby, of course, being Jesus and the worshipers or the crowd being humanity end up killing the baby it basically crowd surfs everywhere it starts to cry she's freaking out trying to get the baby back it starts peeing everywhere and then all of a sudden you hear a snap and it stops moving its neck has snapped and all this commotion you don't just hear the snap you see oh yeah you see the baby no it is it is crazy and apparently this is why fox didn't produce this movie (laughs) and they produced all of aronofsky's previous movies (laughs) because they're like that is a bridge too far That's hilarious after the stuff he's done. Yeah, I mean, his very first feature film, Pi, he has a character drill a hole in his own head. Yes. And survive. Yes. Anyway, so by the time she makes it to her baby to see if it's okay, which of course it's not, but she's desperate, she sees that the zealot's there and now he's like, you know, it's like this sacrificial cult feeling vibe going on here. She gets to where the baby is and it's just a pile of flesh on a table and she turns around and everyone is eating its body parts. Of course, this is the communion. And all you religious people are going to be like, it's a metaphor. <laughs> but no, it's also a metaphor for the fact that, no, this is this is bodily sacrifice. But that's exactly what that's yes. exactly what religious people's response would be. It's yeah. a metaphor. We are not supposed to actually be eating. And I understand that to a point. It's still a weird metaphor. Well, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> one of the reasons why I think Christianity could be so successful, aside from the fact that it just violently took over a lot of places, like with literal violence. I mean, it also absorbed in other parts of other religions and turned them into metaphors or other holidays. And it's like, oh, now this fertility holiday is about the resurrection of Jesus, you know? So it just absorbed through metaphor all this other stuff. And this is one of them. Cannibalistic sacrifices. Oh, that's now communion, you know? And so that's what we see now that everyone's eating her baby. She ends up killing like two of them she freaks out and grabs some broken glass or whatever and starts killing people and then the crowd brings her down they're beating her to death and this is really fucking violent because you just and it's it's a little fake looking as well because they are just stomping her face in and and beating her up and you see it all and it's a little bit cgi well if it makes you feel any better the baby doesn't look real at all (laughs) it is it is cg Fully, that is not even a doll. But I think, yeah, I think it starts as a doll, and they they it looks very CG. It looks very fake. (laughs) The one she's holding is a real baby. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, she gets beaten up and bloodied, and then Javier Bardem has to come and save her again. And he says, "We can't let our baby die for nothing. Maybe what happened will change everyone. We need to find a way to forgive them." She's like, "What the?" fuck are you saying yeah they killed our baby they destroyed our home and they beat the shit out of me she says they butchered our son you're insane (laughs) yes she actually calls him insane which is great we can't let him die for nothing we can't maybe what happened could change everything everyone what are you talking 
way to forgive them. We butchered our son. I know. I know. You're insane. Listen to me. You're insane. But listen to me. They are so sorry. They are truly sorry. Please, have faith in me. Please, please. We need to forgive them. We need to forgive them. Please. She runs out and she makes her way to the basement where she found all that oil. No, you're insane. <laughs> this is bullshit. I'm not listening to this. You are insane. No, you're insane. And we simply do not have time for this crap. She grabs a pipe and smashes it open and all the oil spills out. And she finds, she found earlier, Adam's lighter, which he had left behind. Which we've, we kept seeing it throughout the thing like it kept falling and yes so she lights it and he's like no don't do it and drops it at her feet igniting her and eventually the whole house and the whole place goes up in smoke and we 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 fade to white again which by the way technically is what mother earth is doing to us right now <laughs> yes but i really really hesitate to say that like the planet is fighting back that's not what's happening <laughs> We should not be celebrating the fact that people are dying and not trying to fix it. Anyway. We should be fixing Mother Earth, not yes. letting Mother Earth burn herself yes, alive. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's great. Yes. So when it phases back up, we see that Javier Bardem is completely unscathed. He is holding Jennifer Lawrence, who is burnt to a crisp. And what do they talk about? Right before she set everything on fire, she told him... You never loved me. You just loved how much I loved you. Don't, don't, don't. Please don't. I love you. You never loved me. You just loved how much I loved you. I gave you everything. You gave it all away. No, 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 no. Sets it on fire. Great line. Great line. It is. I mean, that kind of is. I mean, God. That's what. What does God (laughs) want from us? God wants us to love him and Mm -hmm. to worship him. Mm -hmm. Now, you could say, well, God gives us life. I didn't ask for life. Right. Did anybody ask me if I wanted to go through this? (laughs) Did anybody say, hey. Now I'm suddenly supposed to be grateful. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. He's holding her. She's completely burnt. She's about to die. This is when she says, uh, he tells her, I'm a creator. Nothing is ever going to be enough. Yeah. She says, please just let me go. I have nothing left to give you. He goes, no, you do. You have one more thing to give me. He says, your love. And what does he take from her? He reaches into her chest and pulls out her heart. Evil queen style, once upon a time. Yes. (laughs) Which, by the way, is is burnt and shriveled, just like the heart of the house, which we see shriveling up throughout the film as things get worse. So he's holding this heart in his hands, and then he he scrapes away, peels back the, the charcoal, revealing this crystal underneath. 
He goes back to his study that's burnt to a crisp, sets it in the stand where it was originally, and everything starts to heal again, and Mother comes rising up out of the bed again, just like she did in the beginning. She sits up, and she turns, and we see it's not the same Mother this time, and then she calls out to God again, just like she did at the beginning of the movie. Baby? And that is the end of the movie. There's so much stuff we didn't get into. You didn't get nearly as angry as I thought you would. Yeah. I mean, because I'm I'm trying to make an effort here to not annoy myself. And that's when I get angry is when I annoy myself. So, like I say, there's a lot of stuff we didn't get into here. There's plenty, like there's a symbol on the lighter, which represents blah, 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 blah. There's tons of stuff we could have talked about. If you want to... Share it with us, but don't be a dick about it where, oh, you totally missed this or whatever. It's like, yeah, that. we don't care enough. We don't care. <laughs> we, uh, I, it's frustrating when a movie is a pure, is purely a metaphor because, like you say, now we have to go through every single thing and it's like, this is no longer fun and this is no longer entertaining. You're now making me just work at it. Yes. Which is different from reading a metaphor. I feel like I've said this before, I think, how I don't mind reading a book that's pure metaphor. Mm-hmm. A movie is supposed to be something you experience, I feel, you know? Yeah. Like, not something that I'm supposed to sit down and take apart piece mm-hmm. by piece. If there's if there's a point to be made that I have to find, that's different from every single thing that happens in this is an allegory. And the balance that you have to strike is one of either being too specific, where everything ends up being redundant and this movie could have taken five minutes and all it would have been is just Aronofsky sitting in a chair wearing scarves saying, this is what I think about nature and God. Why do you hate his scarves? (laughs) It's so fucking pretentious. (laughs) It's so... I really want to like you, Darren. I really, really do. But you're that pretentious asshole who... Well, when ugh. you make one of the best movies of all time, you kind of get to be. I, I, I know, but I think we think different movies of his are one of the best movies ever. <laughs> you don't think... You honestly do not think that Requiem for a Dream is one of the best films you've ever seen. You tell me whether or not you think that your appreciation of Requiem for a Dream is part of your... If a movie, the more depressing a movie is, the better it is phase that you went through in your life. Okay, sure, but it's still excellent. Oh, I agree, but it's also just exhaustingly depressing. (laughs) But it makes excellent points. I agree. If there was ever a movie that was going to tell me don't do heroin, it was certainly that movie. (laughs) I agree, but it is exhaustingly depressing. (laughs) On the other hand, I fucking love Black Swan. It is so good. And I think as a fan of professional wrestling, but not like a mark for professional wrestling, I love the wrestler. I think it's really good and I think it's honest. I thought it was good. I think it I think there's an honesty to the wrestler that's just brutal and all his movies hopeful are brutal. at the same that's time. The point. I don't think that Requiem for a Dream has very much hope in it. <laughs> of course not. Yes. That's the point. <laughs> but the wrestler does. This does not. 
most of Aronofsky's work doesn't have much hope. Right. But anyway, I th- well, I think Black Swan has a little bit of hope in it. Haven't seen Noah. Yes, yes, yes. This is all with the understanding that we haven't seen Noah. <laughs> Who knows? That might be the real Aronofsky masterpiece. <laughs> and The Fountain, which is just severely underrated. It is so good. Anyway, but that's one side. One side is being overly direct with your metaphor and just outright saying what you mean. Versus being so vague that it can be interpreted in many different ways. There is an article in the Daily Beast that tries to explain what the powder is, the yellow powder. Guess what they think that yellow powder is? I don't know. The yellow powder is a reference to the yellow wallpaper. Do you remember the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, Kelsey? I remember you having to read it. When we were first dating, and you did not like that book. <laughs> no, I mean, it's fine. It's an indictment of the way that we treat women, how we treat mental health among women. I think I remember kids reading that senior year who were all in the in the honors, and they're like, you should be so thankful you're on ours. I was like, fuck yeah. I'm no, like, I mean, it's fine. It's from the 1800s. <laughs> it's pretty progressive for the time that it was written. But like, what the fuck does that have to do with Mother Earth and God? You see what I'm saying? Like, yes, you can stretch the metaphor to include the fucking yellow wallpaper. You can do that. I mean, I would have to assume it's a reference to the Bible. And I can tell you right now, I was raised religious. I went to three different religious schools in my Mm -hmm. lifetime. And I I have no idea what they're referencing. But my point is, is he vacillates between these two... Settings of too direct and repetitive and too vague and permissive. It doesn't strike that balance strongly enough, I think. It's just one or the other. That's its biggest downfall. But I, in the moment, it's easy to ignore because it's just fucking fascinating to watch. I don't know. If it weren't Jennifer Lawrence and it weren't Javier Bardem, I would have probably hated this movie. I think they do an incredible job. They do an outstanding job here. It's I think I think their performances really carry you through the film. Apparently, apparently Jennifer Lawrence got so into it when she's supposed to be freaking out and panicking. I don't know exactly what scene it is, but she started hyperventilating and she ended up cracking her own rib. And when she got back from the hospital, she found that the crew had set up this, like, Jennifer Lawrence isolation area where she could, like, go to and it's just full of things that she loves and likes and can calm her down and center her in between takes and stuff like that, which is really fucking sweet. Very sweet. Everybody loves Jennifer Lawrence. She's just the best. (laughs) (laughs) I still remember the first time I saw her in... uh, Winter's Bone. I was, I think, her first yeah. movie she was ever in, and me and my mom were like, "She's gonna go places." And then right after that, Hunger Games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do you have anything else to talk about this movie? Because again, we could overanalyze and talk about this for fucking hours. We're not going to. Is there anything else you want to say about this movie? Ultimately, I'm glad I saw it a second time. Because I hated it the first time, and I thought I was going to hate it the second time, and I didn't. And I feel exactly the same. I did not. I I liked it more than you when we came out of the theater, and I I don't know if I I like it the same amount now. 
I think I can appreciate it a lot more now. Uh-huh. But still, at the end of the day, I'm just like, so, so humanity sucks. So, yeah. So that's that's mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> I, I I appreciate it as a spectacle that I'm not upset. I've seen twice. I'm not eager to watch again. That's just eh, that's kind of how I feel about it. What do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to guess this was a movie that tore up a lot of people. It did, and I'll explain to you why in just a moment. But first, what do you think it got? I'm going to guess a 69. That's exactly what it has. Nice. (laughs) There's no denying that Mother is the thought-provoking product of a singularly ambitious artistic vision, though it may be too unwieldy for mainstream tastes. I think that's very accurate. Absolutely. This also is one of the rare cases where a movie, especially one where the Rotten Tomatoes is almost 20 points away from the midway point of 50, where the Metacritic is actually further away from the midway point of 50. The Metacritic is 75. And the cinema score, and this is what I was talking about, this is what I remember hearing and being intrigued by. I'm like, oh, I have to see this train wreck. The cinema score is an F. Audiences, just your everyday people that go to see movies, came out of the movie and had to give it a rating, F. People who were not critics who were not big movie buffs, who heard this is the next transcendent film that you need to see, fucking hated it. Yeah. Because this isn't really a movie. Yes. It's almost as if people whose job it is is to talk endlessly about something and overanalyze something have a lot of fodder to work with, and so they like this movie, even though... It's kind of all content and no substance. Yeah. Which is why people are all like, what is this madness I watched and why? <laughs> and so it's it it's it's one of the most divisive movies between critics and and your average audience goer that we're going to talk about on this show. Told you guys when we uh when this movie ended in the theater, there was a lot of people that were not happy. <laughs> and they were just like, what oh, the yeah. fuck was that? That movie didn't make any sense. That was stupid. Like uh-huh. nobody was happy when they left that movie theater. Yeah, and then like <laughs> even uh, like we were we were there with our roommates, and one of our roommates was like, like had to speak out. She was so annoyed that people didn't get it because it's like she didn't even like it that much. It was yeah. just that people didn't get it. Like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> like it was screaming its point at you. But again, again, uh-huh. if you're not familiar with the Bible. It's not going to scream at you the way that it does it ever for us. Yeah. I can't remember the moment. It was early on, but I can't remember the moment where I was like, oh, that's what this is about. And then every moment after that just reinforced it. Yes. I can't remember what moment that was, but it was early on. Adam and Eve, maybe to the point of Cain and Abel showing up. It was somewhere in there yeah. for me, too. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that's what's happening here. And I think that, too, when he took the baby, I was just like, that's not going to be good. That's Jesus. That's, yeah. No, that's what <laughs> Something she's bad's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, but the point is, it's not like, oh, oh, you could you could read into the fact that mother is mother nature and him is God and the house is earth. No, it's not one of those movies. Mother is mother nature. The house is earth and him is God. As a matter of fact... When she asks him who he really is or whatever as she's being carried away and she's burnt to a crisp, he says, I am I. What are you? Me. I am I. <laughs> 
You. You were home. Which is something that God says in the Bible, depending yeah. on the translation that you're reading. It's when, it's when Moses talks to him in the desert. I am that I am. It's a good movie. <laughs> is it, though? <laughs> you didn't like The Prince of Egypt? <laughs> oh, The Prince of Egypt. Oh, I thought I you were talking about... I love The Prince of Egypt. I thought you were talking about The Ten Commandments. Oh, I've never seen that. <laughs> really? Cecil B. DeMille? I've seen, like, the famous part where he comes out with it. Yeah. But I no, I've never seen the whole movie. It's, like, four hours long. Yes, it is. It's very fucking long. <laughs> is that overrated or underrated? It's pretty close to what I'm going to give it. What are you going to give it? I'm going to give it a 72. I think it's a really well-made film. Yeah, like I was saying, it's really well done. It's just not entertaining, and it's not an interesting story. <laughs> It just amounts to humanity sucks. Yeah. Which I, I mean, already knew. <laughs> you can't directly compare films like this, but considering how we watched it in this episode, Serial Mom, nowhere near the caliber of filmmaking at play. Yeah, not even. As, as mother. Not even close. Not but even I enjoyed close. it more. You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 more fun. I enjoyed myself more with Serial Mom. I, I, I'll just go with the 75. And, and both of them are 75. When did I give Serial Mom? 65. Okay. So. I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just say that right now. I'm proud. <sighs> oh, God, this movie. All right. That's our modern film, 2017's Mother, thus ending our Mother's Day celebration. Mother! Mother! Oh, mother! With this week coming to a close, Kelsey... What are we watching next week? Next week is a recommendation week. Okay. So next week is a musical week. <gasps> oh, no, God. No, oh, God. Don't oh. Get to, no, don't get too excited. It's not that one. Oh. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Nina recommended that we watch Rock and Roll Nightmare. Okay. I'm aware of it. Never seen it. And Jake recommended that we watch Deathgasm. You're right. <laughs> this is not the one I was hoping it was. I know. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so, yes, thank you very much, Nina and Jake. Really appreciated. I guess we're going to watch these movies now. <laughs> there are plenty of horror musicals we could watch, including some that I would be excited about. These are not them. <laughs> But I've never seen them, so they might be transcendent. Who knows? Uh, yeah, well, from what I've been reading, Deathgasm is, like, a phenomenon that I had never heard of. I've heard of it. Okay. Yeah, but I've never seen it. That will be next week. Until then, you can always reach us on our website, podcemetery.com. Catch every episode there. Get a look at every movie we've covered if you want to explore a backlog that way. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter because there's a lot of extra content that goes up there. Uh, there's a link to that in our description. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcatcher of choice and rate and review. A five-star written review is the best help you can give us there. Sharing us with your friends is even better, and even better than that is listening in the GD first place. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Well, you really do love him. God help you. Mother, tell your children not to hold my hand. Tell your 
Chip, you know I hate the brown word. <laughs> well, Jesus didn't decry the death penalty on the cross, so we must also support the death penalty, just like Jesus would. I've said it both the ways I want to say it so far. In the beginning, I did it like Danzig, and the second time, I did it like that clip from Mr. Show with Bob and David. Which, hold on, I will... Here it is, here it is. Ass! Shit! Mother! <laughs> Mother! <laughs> I got my head checked. By a jumbo jet. It wasn't easy. But nothing as... No. Yes. So she wakes up. Hold on. I just sneezed. The phone rings. Line from Red. (laughs) I gotta put that here. (laughs) We love each and every one of you. Because we're just magnanimous that way. That's the fourth time I've said magnanimous in this episode. This review. Three out of ten stars. Religious allegories abound, but really it's just pretentious nonsense. (laughs) 